This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. And boy, oh boy, I wish we could do something about the stock market. Can't we, though? I don't know that I can. Hmm. I mean, it can is... Can have like a run on the banks or... No. Probably ought not do that. Not stop buying stocks? No, I probably wouldn't stop that either. Hmm. Just fasten your seatbelts is what uh, is probably the only advice we can get. Only uh, 54% of the country is actually in the stock market, so... Yeah. That's higher than I thought. Well, but uh, but uh, the funny thing about just that 54%, there's there's a lot of money and a lot of future and a lot of jobs and a lot of uh And then at the peace. same in th- the same time, yeah, a big number drop, but it it's still pretty high. Yeah. And everyone's like, "Ah, it'll it'll come back cuz it always has." Yeah. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. But then we'll just right? do a bailout. And, and what would fight be fantastic is if we actually knew why it was happening. Bitcoin. Trump. Well, I mean, many are saying Trump, if Trump made it happen the first time, if he's the guy that was responsible for making it go up, is he the guy responsible for making it go down? You have to own it either way, right? If you're yeah. going to come out and say, this is all me, then you have to say, Wrong. it's all me. It just doesn't stop being your responsibility. Wrong. When, in fact, the president has very little very to do little. with it. It has more to do with uh, you know, raising interest rates from the, the, the Federal Reserve and all that. Yeah. It has a lot more influence than anything the president does. Well, and it may, I mean, jobs were, a lot of people were getting jobs. A lot of good news were com- was coming out. And now this is starting to impact a lot of that. The, the uh, markets abroad are struggling as well. And since it's been about around 10% or so drop... It's more of a market correction, yeah, than a just crash. But so this might just be the fact that maybe it was maybe overinflated, yeah. and now it's dropped back to correct. maybe reality you know a little what? bit. It's like a little burp. Yeah, it's just a burp. Sometimes you did just, you want to demonstrate? Or? No, you, sometimes okay. you just got there's gas, there's extra. He's all there, <coughs> there's just extra gas, and you just got to get a little burp out. Let me, Let me hand you this root beer. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm good. Thanks, so. though. It's uh, no matter what's happening. It's there is anxiousness. Did you? Uh, our, our guest today is going to be talking about why um, why justice is important mm-hmm. instead of just the rule of law, right? And how contention is really good. Believe it or not, like we need all this discord that's going on politically. Really? Does this work in all life or just certain situations? Because I kind of like contention. I just always get told that's may be a bad thing. Well, you probably like it for a different reason. It's fun. <laughs> um, but a survey conducted by the Harris Poll reports that what keeps Americans up at night is genuine political anxiety. Really? People are actually worried about the political world. This is what's keeping people awake. Rather than issues related to their work or their families, respondents said they were most worried about the future of the nation and the current social divisiveness. Isn't that crazy? Wow. And if you go back a month and see what was going on, you'll be amazed what was happening. Because right now, it doesn't matter. No, it never matters. <laughs> it's like it's just another week. Move on. But it, what Matt, what everyone seems to be worried about is they like it's so divisive. And hmm. this means the country is going to collapse because we can't have such division. And they probably heard somebody say that on a politically themed show. Yeah, probably. Because 
that's how you get people to watch a show is you cause anxiety for some reason. We are going to this this world's the 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 world is falling apart. However, um, our guest today will be talking about the fact that now nah, this is actually pretty healthy. In fact, the 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 least healthy part of our divisiveness is that there's we're kind of only in broken into a few factions. If oh, we had hmm. more factions fighting against each other, it actually might even be healthier. So am I normal then if no. what keeps me up at night is maybe I ate too much chocolate or I've got restless legs? Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. That, that's probably normal. That would be normal anxious restlessness. Yeah. So I'm not, not good for your wife either way. <laughs> your wife's hating it. You with your shaky leg all night. Um, so anyway, tough, tough uh, time on uh, Wall Street. Many people... You know, worried about it because it it means a lot of things down the road. Um, we uh, we got a lot of other headlines. Let's get to Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Government shutdown possibly on Thursday. Oh boy, just keep you up to date on that. Congress no closer to avoiding the government shutdown. The House will have a vote on f- a funding proposal sometime today. Interesting fact I read this morning: what? House seats held by Republicans generally have significantly lower foreign-born population than those held by Democrats. An hmm. indication of why the two parties are so far apart on immigration. Yeah, we can't get do- a DACA bill. A DACA because... bill, which shut the government down before, may not have a big impact this time around. Huh. We may not be focusing on that. More of a military spending flavor to this one. Oh, let's. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> we'll talk about great. that later. So, uh, yeah. So, um, but, uh, says this uh, article starts out. It goes, buckle up. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wall Street futures down across the board early Tuesday, so early today but pointed to a third day of turmoil ahead of its 9.30 a.m. opening in New York. Mm. The shakiness comes a day after the Dow Jones Industrial Average posted its biggest one-day loss ever, plummeting 1,175 points on fears of inflation, higher interest rates, as well as reaction to of computer-driven trading algorithms. Oh, wow. Computers. There was Back also some stuff about Bitcoin and someone, a British uh, financier, calling it a Ponzi scheme, but... That might have just have been a fun little anecdote. Yeah. Uh, overnight stock markets throughout Asia and Europe dropped dramatically on the new worries. Meanwhile, it goes on. Bitcoin prices plummeted, falling below six thousand. Remember, they're almost up to twenty thousand a Bitcoin. Yeah, that was crazy. Mm. Now they're at six thousand. Why? Because regulators from the U.S. and elsewhere begin to clamor for more oversight over the cryptocurrency. Over a trillion dollars in wealth was lost yesterday across the globe. Wow. But funny thing, it's only held by. Really smart, techno-savvy people. Right. That's kind of weird. Yeah. A trillion dollars. Across the globe disappeared. Unbelievable. CNN reports the stock market falling, but still leaves the economy at a significantly higher level than it was when Trump took office. Yeah. Mm. So it's been growing. Yeah. Thanks, President Trump. Uh, President Trump's lawyer wanted him to skip an interview with special counsel. Oh, before we go into that, yesterday Trump was in Ohio talking about the economy and how yeah. great it is. Yeah. As the uh, all the ne- news networks were cutting away from his speech to show that the stock market is plummeting. <laughs> oh no! No one was saying, "Hey, yeah. by the way." The old split screen moment. He's like, "The He's... economy's great, jobs are great, stock market's up," and oh. then like in the corner, the ticker's just dying. So oh. maybe this is a sign he shouldn't be meeting with Mueller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this mm-hmm. says that his lawyers want him to skip an interview with special counsel. Robert Mueller, this out of the New York Times, Trump has claimed to be looking forward to the interview, 
but his lawyers reportedly worry that he'll make false statements, potentially opening him up to charges of lying to investigators. Refusing an interview could cast doubt on Trump's claims of being innocent of Russian collusion. If he refuses the interview, Mueller could also subpoena him to testify before a grand jury. Oh, boy. So look for a fight for that over the next few weeks. Have we ever had a president testify before a grand jury? I do not believe so. Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the Clinton situation went. I don't remember it being a grand jury. That seems like a pretty big deal. Maybe they did discuss the definition of is. Depends on what is is. Yeah. I don't know if I paid attention to that time. House Intelligence Committee voted unanimously to release the Democratic rebuttal to the Republican memo released last week. Trump now has five days to decide if he'll block the release of the Democratic memo. Well, and they say he may not block it, but he may redact it so much it's unreadable. Right. Like, it, it, he'll take anything out that doesn't... Which, in effect, will be blocking it. Yeah. Nah, but he didn't block it. He'll let it. Right. He'll let you read it. It's just a bunch of black lines. <laughs> and finally, the Super Bowl numbers are in. The game averaged 103.4 million viewers, 2 million on the web, and 534,000 in Spanish on Universal or Universo. So whatever the Spanish... Universo. There you go. Only half um, a mil? Yeah. That's not very many. Wow. So NBC is citing a total of 106 million because they put in the uh, the streaming plus the Spanish plus yeah. theirs. They add all but that the up. But the numbers are down. Um, so let's see, a seven percent drop hmm. from uh, last year. Wow. But I mean, everything has a ten percent drop. So actually, they probably did better than the overall number across all of TV. Yeah. Right? It was such a great game. But it's another sign that the league's ratings have peaked. Sunday nights ranking ranked as the least watched Super Bowl since two thousand nine. NBC reported their average of 2 million streaming viewers. That's the closest thing to a TV rating number we'll have for web streaming, whatever they say, because they have the rights. We can thank Jeff's family for that. Yeah. (laughs) It's another record. uh, That's a record for Super Bowl streaming. So every year, Super Bowl streaming gets bigger, bigger. and the overall number tends to drop a little bit. Oh, wow. It says every year, I keep telling myself the next line. The Super Bowl record and record for any television event in the U.S. was the 114 million who watched the Patriots against the Seahawks in 2015. Mm-hmm. 114, right? Sunday's game ranks the 10th most watched TV event in U.S. history. Wow. So really? it's down. It's the least watched since 2009. Still a pretty big event. But it's the 10th most in the history of all of the records. Now, the other issue is it counts the way Nielsen does it is they have an electronic box in people's homes. Yeah. And that counts as one. Right, but it may have but had. You could have more ten people in a room watching. If you're yeah. watching at bars, restaurants, group meetings, That's anywhere, it. and so on Thursday, I read they're going to come out with an estimate for group watching. Hmm. How oh. in the world can they know no, to have you... any sort of number? And it's ve- well, you they know get, how they get little counters to the pub people. They no, they go watch. They go count how many chips were sold. Oh, that's a great way. Bags of chips. Well, all of this is incorrect, but good idea, yeah. But I could eat a giant bag myself. I know, that's what's sick. Anyway. 100 mil, that's only about half of the the number of people that watched the inauguration, if I remember correctly. No, there was, I think there was 2 billion people that watched the last inauguration. Mm Mm-hmm. Was it two I trillion? think almost the same amount of people watched the This Is Us episode after the Super Bowl that watched the inauguration. I think the numbers are almost the same. Wow. Now, the funny thing is, is you even have a stat for that. That's 27 million. That's pretty pathetic. I read that this morning. You're, you're reading too much. No, it's just in the email I read. It was 27 million. Yeah, you're totally 
wasting. I think they they brain. need to apologize to the Crockpot Company. I'm just saying. Uh, so, by the way, do you want to bet the number of the actual watchers by group will be significantly more than any Super Bowl ever? They've got Maybe. they've got to find a way to get those numbers. Up. I read some speculation saying that the number probably won't even move. Oh, it will move. It's not sure. It's got to move, right? Because I watched it with no uh, twelve people in my house. Same thing happened last year. Number really didn't even move. They put out the similar yeah guesstimation, I guess. So but, I don't. But the funny thing is, in order to save their marketing hide, they have to show progress, mm. and this is regress. Well, the Olympics are coming up too, and NBC has those, so they're going to see a real decline there. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they'll tell you all about their streaming numbers. That's great. Well, I'm proud of their streaming. That's fantastic. Which they probably can't sell. You going to tune into curling? Oh yeah. By the way, don't make curling jokes because that's where Terry and his wife yeah. went on their first date. First date curling, like in a salon or the sport, which is different than hurling. The by the way, <laughs> yeah. Hurling, a completely Mine different sport. Mine was more sport. slipping and falling, but uh, sure, curling. Yep. You worked out. I mean, you had a you like were sweating. I heard. Well, no, I mean through that a, whole date, run an ice sheet. I know but you kept trying. You kept falling, and you couldn't get up. Well, she thought it was funny. Yeah. So I bet people that are professional sweepers or sweep for a living would do really well at curling. Well, no, it's more targeted sweeping. And yeah. maybe you're trying to angle. Shape the ice. It's really kind of odd when they explain it. Um, speaking, you, you can see how people do it inebriated, but it's fine. Speaking <laughs> of targeted inebriated sweeping, okay. um, would you consider it treasonous for not clapping for the president during his address? Absolutely. No. Oh. Oh, wait. Mm -hmm. oh. Uh, apparently, President Trump told a crowd in Cincinnati uh, Monday that the Democrats were basically treasonous because they wouldn't stand and applaud. He said some have called it treasonous. He goes, what do you think? Do you think it's treason? It didn't look like they loved America to me. Yep. You're like, what's yep. going on? Wow. He said they were like death and un-American. <laughs> un-American. Somebody said treasonous, president said. Yeah. I mean, he yeah, never names that I guess, person. why not? Can, can we call that treasonous? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country that much. Hmm. Ooh. Yeah. So. Wow. He's watched these before, I hope. Yeah. He understands how they how this goes. But I think, yeah, but he, I think he thinks everything he says is, is so for the is, country. So is Marco Rubio partisan. a traitor? Yeah. Because he didn't stand during some of the immigration discussion that Trump was having. Well, I think he's thinking more Pelosi. <laughs> Pelosi's a traitor. It's like saying if somebody well, doesn't like me, they must not like males. Good point. Mm. Yeah, it's probably true. Solid reasoning. Well, you remember yesterday we were talking about Trey Gowdy? Yeah. Republican from South Carolina, I think. Yep. Is that where he's from? Yeah. And so North Carolina. He's from North Carolina. He is stepping down. He's not going to run again. And he says it's because he can't play this political game of you have a different opinion, so you must be evil. Well, and yeah. He goes, I don't understand that. I have a lot of friends across the aisle. They have different opinions. Let's talk about it. And instead now, are they traitors because they didn't agree with me? Mm. Seems like it's a step too far. That's actually what we're talking about in our but first may Maybe interview. it's the new way to be an American. Well, but it's not really American because what we're trying to do is just quickly shut down any conversation. So you go from Democrats not applauding the president's. Uh, political positions. Mm -hmm. he, they applauded a lot of things. The Democrats applauded 
any statement about soldiers and right. warriors. And I mean, I think they stood up for every one of his uh, visitors, mm-hmm. right? But in the end, um, then if I don't stand up for everything you say, then I'm obviously a treasonous traitor. Right. I think the rule of That's thumb is you're, on, you're only allotted about five different claps. So you need to use them sparingly. Yeah. And it's tough to – in, in the, a speech that long, it's, it's tough to choose when to right. shower you, them out. You don't want to use them early. You don't want to save them until the end. You want to – Yeah. You've got to make sure when the camera's on you, you're presenting the right message at that point. It's a very difficult time for everyone sitting in the audience. Really? Wow. Like Nancy Pelosi can't smile at certain things. She can't clap at certain things. And then you have Paul Ryan sitting behind. Paul Ryan sat back there with President Obama. Yeah. So President Obama's on the screen the whole time. Paul Ryan's in the corner. He has to be very strategic when when he wasn't in you know in the power. Well, he was he had the uh, Speaker of the House. Yeah. But you have the Democratic president saying things you don't agree with, but then all of a sudden he mentions soldiers. But what's the context? Do I stand here? Do I sit? And he he uh, had to uh, sit there on uh, camera. At least now everyone's out in the audience. Uh, can you imagine the pressure? Oh. Plus just the fact that you have to sit up straight for an hour and a half. You can't fall asleep? It's tough. You can't pull out your red vines? Those, I've seen that chamber. It is not a comfortable seat. No. Mm. Boy, that's a hard job. Hmm. <laughs> But tw- once a year, <laughs> once a year, so he's got to sit, sit there. Oh, it's ridiculous. And the sweat. Mm. Uh. It's more fun, though, when um, when it's kind of a divided, when you have a Republican and a Democrat sitting up there yeah. behind the president. Right. I think that's more fun. When you had Joe Biden sitting next to Paul Ryan. Yeah, because then you get to see, oh, which Who's standing, which one, who's sitting. Yeah, who seems more together. Right. What if you were just a slouch? What if you just couldn't put your act together? Your tie was popping out of your jacket. You're making this sound like family photo day. Like, seriously. It kind of is. Like, you, can you not be a disheveled, mussy hair? I mean, can you not? What if you're just not put together? Hmm. That'd be bad. Then everyone would nitpick you. That's when you get the nosebleed section. What if you had a, like a major chest cold or a head cold and you're up there just hacking behind the president the whole time? That would be like then Giuliani's son oh, yeah, yeah. stealing all the attention. Mm. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't even like sitting on the stand at church. I couldn't imagine sitting. That was an old Saturday Night Live sketch, by the way. Chris what? Farley as Giuliani's son. I love that. Kind of jumping all over him. Well, even before that, there was actually Giuliani's son. Yeah, which might have been better. Did you not see the original? You would have loved it. It's going to remind you of Stas when he's older, and you're like having an you're having a moment. You're having you're speaking in church, and Stas will be behind you just goofing around. Come on, Stas. Anyway, uh, we got a lot to cover, folks. Straight ahead, we're going to be talking about why. Justice is more important than rule of law and really the importance of conflict in our political system. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Americans are feeling more and more stressed. 
Uh, Today, a study last year confirmed that people are most worried about the future of the nation and current social divisiveness. uh, Most people say that this is because the rule of law is being ignored in our country today. But what is the rule of law and how does it relate to justice? Here to speak with us today is Dr. Klaus Melodic, a professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College and uh, the author of an article on theconversation.com, Why Justice is More Important Than the Rule of Law. Uh, Klaus, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is, um, I think, I think a really important topic, and especially uh, at a perfect time, it seems like, in our history. Uh, talk to us, Klaus. What, how, how do you differentiate between uh, this idea of, like, the rule of law and everybody being frustrated that the rule of law is not being, um, you know, fulfilled or, or lived up to versus justice? Yeah, that's a, that's a crucial question. I think that the rule of law, when it was conceived in the 18th century as the rule of law versus the rule of men, um, is in a way not enough, I argue, for addressing our anxieties. The political anxiety that, I'm, that I mentioned at the beginning of the article, that uh, people think we are too divided, that uh, the future of the nation is at risk, that we have reached the lowest point in history, Um, because the rule of law, to a certain degree, is, um, when you think about it, it's bendable, it's incomplete, it's unjust. Often there are laws that are are unjust. I mean, I come from Germany, and in Germany, as you know, between 1933 and 1945, we had the rule of injustice. Mm. And uh, so you and Martin Luther King addressed that very powerfully. He said, look, if I lived in, in Germany in the 40s uh, and I would just uh, abide by the laws, I would, do, I would commit injustices. And um, I think we have to regain hold of the, the concept of justice. Um, I um, was, was very struck by a quote from a pre-Socratic philosopher, Heraclitus, who said, conflict is justice. Hmm. And that is an amazing statement when you think about it. But oh, yeah. then you notice that Madison, Jefferson, think exactly through that problem. Namely, how do you uh, reconcile conflicts? How do you manage conflicts? How do you deal with conflicts in a fashion that is creative, value-creating, in fact? And, and improvement and improving, right? You, you want your process of dealing with the conflict to actually be enhancing the, the solutions and, and creating more justice. That's right. I mean, uh, I, I think, for example, um, that when Heraclitus said that, it sounds, sounds almost crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Conflict itself is a form of justice. But when you really think through it, when you, when you engage in conflict, um, you um, show respect for your opponent, you uh, acknowledge that you can't just jump immediately to a consensus. Uh, you cannot immediately uh, uh, say, oh, I have already reached some form of future consensus. No, you have to uh, put yourself into the place of tension. You, um, I mean, you had last week someone on who talked about um, uh, conflict in work, workplace. Yeah. Um, and that, that, I felt like, was exactly what I was trying to convey that Jefferson, for example, had that melancholic conclusion, said, oh, my God, I even now in my friendship with Hamilton and with Madison have, uh, have the completely different opinions. 
how do I reconcile that? You know, I'm more for states' rights. Uh, Hamilton wants something like the English Constitution, and that uh, that even on the personal level made them made them anxious about their their discord. But that discord is actually value creating. It is a chance to for us to uh, to engage in struggles for um, for better compromises. Does it does it matter, um, Professor, if how we handle the conflict? Because it seems like sometimes these conflicts are um, they're not they're not we're not dialoguing. We're not creating solutions. It seems like together. It seems like for some one party gets the power and then they enforce their power. Um, versus, and then the next party gets their power and they re they'll enforce their power. Does it matter if it's dialogic versus, you know, just like forced conflict? Right. I mean, uh, again, sorry to, to come back to, to Jefferson, but he said we often confuse en- uh, uh, energy with violence, mm. right? We, we uh, think discord is something violent, but in fact it is a, an engine. Think of the, um, I mean, I'm a chess player, right? When you really uh, go for the draw, you don't create a beautiful match, right? Uh, or um, I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm coming from a multi-party system in Germany. And, you know, Voltaire, the French philosopher, said beautifully, right? If there are only two religions, the people would cut each other's throats. Hmm. But if there are many, if there is a multitude and many factions, many passions and interests, then we all live happily and in peace. And I think part of the problem is that we have that we are headbutting uh, between two parties who are locked in a uh, in a kind of culture war, and they're just not enough. There's divisiveness because there's not there there are not as uh, as many divisions as we need as we need. Do you see this in Germany? Um, do you see this in other parts of the world where they're all as stressed as we are? I mean, there are a lot of movements uh, ab- about with nationalism or, and, you know, kind of butting up against globalism. Um, do, but do you see the same kind of anxiety and tension in other countries? This is a great question. Um, I've been thinking about this this morning. Um, absolutely. I do think that in Germany as well or in France, or in, I have Spanish friends and English friends. Brexit is a big yeah. issue. I do think that. What is so interesting at the moment, there is in Germany a sense of sort of political um, discontent and cynicism and, um, and anger, but at the same time a sort of private content. So people drive their carbon uh, bikes, they have beautiful cars, they, they sit in the beer gardens and have a great uh, time with friends. But when it comes to politics, they switch, and there is immediately an enormous amount of, of anger that has to be vented. So it's not completely different. However, I do think it's somewhat mitigated by the fact that there are multiple parties, multiple factions, and, and different types of conflicts. That it's not just, right, uh, like in the United States in the last years, it has been, you have to be pro-choice. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, just... Think of people who, for example, are pro-choice, pro-labor, pro-church. That doesn't actually exist almost anymore. And uh, that is what I mean with multiplying passions, interests, and factions. So by having more factions, you're arguing um, by having more 
differences, um, even within our parties, within our our systems, it, it would actually um, it would it would probably help us diminish the anxiety, or or yeah. and it would help us uh, probably create more justice. Right. I mean, think about it. I mean, from you are uh, um, interested in the divorce uh, um, uh, law and mitigation. And I, I uh, uh, think about that as well, right? When a third a mediator enters, right. it's a completely different scenario. All of a sudden, there is a different ear. You're no longer simply in this, in this locked in this. Yeah, I mean, let's call it echo chamber mm-hmm. in, in a, in a head butting uh, confrontation that just wants to uh, uh, engage in a war of roses. And I think that uh, uh, makes all the difference, the entrance of a third or even a fourth, mm-hmm. um, that would get us out of this particular um, mode of, of, of two. And yeah, this binary choice we have of Republican or Democrat. And then even in our political world, you see a lot of uh, independents, they're calling them, but the independents, you know, seem to just kind of go with one party or the other. But behind all of this is also this this interesting sense as humans that we've been violated, mm-hmm. that that our justice is violated. And it seems like that's what creates so much of this energy. Absolutely. You know, people, when they responded to my article, uh, were pretty s- uh, cynical, right? Some, uh, some said, oh, the only law that people understand is the, law is the uh, rule of the gun. Or uh, they say something like, uh, the more money you have, the more justice you get. Um, and the rest of us, good luck. Justice is in the United States is dead. And I think this, this cynicism comes also from, um, to a certain degree, no longer uh, seeing the precision of justice. You feel it only, you know, justice is a vague term. It has to do with love. It has to do with, uh, with God sometimes. It has to, go, to do with uh, uh, totally different fields, you know, to, uh, fidelity to the dead. But um, in a way, we, have, we, have no longer, we are no longer ca- capable of... Uh, uh, feeling the injustice. For example, children feel injustice very poignantly. I feel injustice in the past in my childhood very uh, strongly. I mean, my grandfather, for example, was arrested by, by the Gestapo for uh, saying something bad about Hitler. So he was put in a concentration camp, came back as a broken man. And that uh, was always haunted my family, I have to say. And I think many people have those strong senses of injustice. For example, 2008 was such a moment where a lot of people, uh, the financial crisis, where a lot of people felt, wow, uh, we really um, let uh, the wrong people off the hook, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that injustice is strongly felt, and I feel we haven't addressed it, and we haven't addressed it through modes of conflict. And it's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point because um, it's almost like you can't heal because you don't ever have a voice, but you always remember. Yeah. So then, when there is a pain, or when you when there is a moment where you can do it, you always feel that pain of injustice. Absolutely. I mean, it manifests itself sometimes in humiliations and in injuries, in shame. You know, or when you didn't do something. I mean, the risk of not doing something is so big. 
sometimes. I mean, I didn't help a uh, uh, a friend when I was 10 years old who got beaten up just because he was Spanish, and I felt still feel mm. kind of ashamed about it, right? Yeah. Uh, and those things, they linger. And uh, it's astonishing how precise justice, in fact, is. It's not that broad as uh, many people think. And it's it's so personal, too, it sounds yeah. like. It really is personal. That is a... That is <laughs> You know, I mean, bring it, bring, maybe bring it a little bit to the impersonal level, but I think right, justice is, in a way, the conflict with doing justice to each and everyone as a creature, singularly. But at the same time, it, is, it has something to do with equality, treating everyone the same. Mm. Right? Parents are advised to treat their children the same, to, 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 have, to have a sort of equality. Whereas grandparents often have said they can have their favorites, right? Um, and in a way, justice is this conflict between singular, addressing a person as a who, you, like in love, and on the other hand, um, uh, uh, to what, you know, to the cause of equality, racial justice, social justice, gender equality, and the like. Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Klaus Melodic, who is a professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College. He's walking us through uh, why justice is more important than the rule of law. Many times we have laws that don't necessarily provide equal justice, and we've seen that over many, many years of history. Um, uh, Klaus, one thing I, I also um, notice is that there's a weird – there's almost like two conversations going on where we're – People are citing the the lack of law or the lack of people following the law, um, but really, what what everyone can be fighting simultaneously is their own injustice. Yeah, but yeah. The, like, I mean, I just see. I mean, we see all of these movements, but we see it. There's no everybody has had some injustice. It seems like, and yeah. um, and so then when we get to a fight present day about uh, the DACA laws um, for in, for immigration, everybody pulls out their, their past injustices and just starts beating each other up with them. That's right. This is why I think also, coming back to this conflict is justice term, you know, when you, when you, it's not about setting aside your differences or, you know, coming together for the greater good to find a solution. That, I think, is, is wrong-headed. In a way, it's a path to injustice, because you assume already consensus. So what you just said, the past injustice, you know, I don't know if you can put it aside, but think of the term forgiveness. Forgiveness is not to forget past injustices, like in the truth and reconciliation uh, um, uh, procedures during the South, you know, in the yeah. South Africa. Uh, it's not about so much forgetting injustices, but finding modes to to discuss them, to address them, to in fact um, fully live them and act them again, and and thus to to um, I mean. I, let, let me just say one thing. I, you know, Cornell West said beautifully, um, "Love is our justice is what love looks like in public." When you think of the moment of falling in love, and you know that's what it what justice is all about. Mm -hmm. It is also being um, bereft of solutions, being having not a clear answer. 
being, you know, this is the moment Madison, Madison and Jefferson had in this moment of, of revolution, right? The moment where everything is at stake, where everything has to be questioned. You know, in our very regulated society where everything is, is uh, determined, what you eat, how you're supposed to raise your kids, how you're supposed to, to talk, then suddenly this moment of erasure of all uh, different preconceptions um, is, is a very liberating moment. And in a way, I ask, I would ask to, um, politicians to put themselves into a position of falling in love, right, mm. in an emphatic sense, meaning erasure of all the preconceived uh, notions, not to forget, but be capable of suspending of a kind of forgiving yeah that's uh, that's powerful and also i in my head i i wonder uh, because there are certain things we're not even allowed to say there's there's right. th- there's things you're not even allowed to question um because of past injustices uh, that that's why it was so interesting and beautiful for you to bring up uh, germany because right. you lived there and your grandpa did question hitler and he paid for it, and then that's got to put everybody in your family in this weird position of like, just be quiet, don't talk. Yeah. Um, but yeah. so, so how do we how do we teach that process of you know suspending your need to react and actually remaining open to the conversation? Yeah, this is exactly um, the 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 point, right? How to to be open, sort of a constitutive openness to surprise, to mm-hmm. effects of conflicts that are different from what you originally were set out to do, right? When you sit around a table, so to say, or you uh, um, uh, are engaged in a, in a contentious moment. Um, and I think we have to learn how to sustain this tension and put yourself into the patience and the tenacity to remain in this place of discord and tension and not immediately look for confirmation, not, not immediately look for consensus. Um, and that entails not just that you, uh, that, 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 as we said, that is this openness to a surprise outcomes, right? For example, Madison said it's a stroke of luck, best compromise are sometimes like a stroke of luck. Uh, the compromise is called the Constitution. That's hmm. in the second line to establish justice. Right? There are that compromises emerge from sparks of protracted struggles and sudden encounters. So we are, yeah, I, I, I can't say it. Uh, to open to this radical sort of contingency of what could happen in the next moment, rather than having all those preordained um, demands in, in your head. Yeah, that's so powerful, and really is. Uh, there's so much. There's so much that can be in those sparks. There's so many surprises. So many things that we can't imagine. Uh, how beautiful the answers could be if we could allow those sparks to take place. I guess too. Some of our human nature is we don't want surprise. We we and so and especially when we have institutions and organizations and people and parties that are trying to always force their hand, it's hard to go into a meeting where anyone would actually remain open to surprise. Yeah, yeah. 
No, exactly. I mean, I think I have the worst meetings when I'm already kind of obsessed about uh, what is supposed to happen or when I already imagine certain positions being um, almost, you know, hang over me. As yeah. though I, have, you know, I mean, I have lovely colleagues, uh, so that isn't really a big issue. But it is, uh, you know, you, you, if you are really, to a certain degree, um, also ready for humor that allows in that moment to break this ice. Yeah. Um, that is extremely powerful um, in, in moments when, when you're, to a certain degree, too tense. Um, there is such a thing as too tense as well. Yeah. Uh, right? Uh, one should not... Uh, this is when tension can bleed into violence. Mm, it's beautiful. I mean, really, it's, it's this dialogue that needs to take place in our community, and our culture, and I, I so appreciate you doing what you can to push on the paradigm of all of us. Dr. Klaus Melodic is his name, a professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College. Uh, just a gem. Uh, honestly, we're so lucky to have thinkers like Klaus that, that, that are out there pushing us and, and driving us to be better and more open to uh, what can be. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see how we can bring these dialogues, these conversations home. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Well, um, you know, when you think about conflict in your life, how do you handle it? Are you one that uh, that can actually sit back, as our last guest was talking to us about, and uh, and allow the difference of opinion in? Can you suspend your need to react? Right? Can you attend to what they're saying and remain influenceable, remain open to what another person is saying. Do you listen? Do you actually listen to what they are saying? And uh, on top of all of it, do you also voice? I mean, a lot of people could sit and listen and be, you know, quiet and passive, and, but do you also voice your opinion as well? Do you, have a, do you have the ability to take what they've said and bridge your opinion into theirs? I call it build onto their opinion, because what I believe is when we listen to people really attentively, 80% of what they are saying, you will probably agree with. So as as a mediator, I would sit down with couples fighting about the biggest issues of their marriage, and they're, they're in a pretty intense argument. And as we start to kind of, you know, slice down the argument into its its more finite points, what you will find out find out when you get to the more finite points, we have about 80% agreement. There's a lot of stuff we agree on in the argument, but we spend about 100% of our time where we disagree. So do you have the ability to suspend and to make sure that you're not reacting to uh, your emotion inside, this fight or flight kicking in you, in your heart and in your mind that's making your heart race and uh, you want to stop them from saying what they're saying because if I can just stop you from saying it, I guess that would make it not happen or that would make you not think that way. But wouldn't it make more sense to allow some of these ideas out into the dialogue, especially if it's somebody I love and care about and want to influence 
wouldn't it make more sense to actually understand where they're coming from? Right? So that I can understand why they're thinking this way, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're, you know, making or taking this position about something that I hold near and dear to my heart. There is, there's power, folks, in this ability to do it. And I, the funny thing is we expect our, our leaders to be able to do it politically, and yet I believe most of us can't do it privately. Most of us struggle to do that personally. Over and over, in fact, tonight as well, I will sit in a room tonight with probably 10 to 12 people, six couples, who really have a hard time talking with each other. And and we, we've trained them, we've taught them the skills, and tonight they come and they just practice it. And as they practice it, it is amazing how how hard it is to actually, you know, hold back those horses that want to just run with this issue and stop their partner from saying what they feel or what they think and or in misinterpreting it and taking it to the worst possible level I could take it. Those are unique skills, right? Notice I've talked about suspending, attending, listening, voicing, all very important points, building onto what people are saying. All important communication skills. Do you possess them? Because if you don't, can I just challenge you to go start learning how to do it? In fact, next hour we will also be talking about how to manage your emotions so you're not as uh, you don't get taken over by that wave of emotion when somebody says something you didn't want to hear. This is about relating, folks. This is about life. And by the way, if you remember, it's also about your stress. A lot of your stress comes from the mere fact that you know deep, deep, deep in your heart, we don't know how to do this thing. We don't know how to have conflict. And until we do, I think we will always have that stress. A little coach's corner, you know, it's just my take. We will continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back. You know, uh, one place um, where we may not be always getting along like we think we should is is even in the marketing of certain products. And our own Terry South has been uh, doing some research on a company that may be getting itself in a little bit of trouble. The, the bosses at Doritos yeah. have revealed that they are about to launch a new lady-friendly version of the snack, which are quieter and easier to eat and a lot less messy. Like, well, that's all the fun. Well, but so they're assuming that women are just more dainty and they'd rather have a quiet Dorito and less messy. They claim researchers found women do not like to crunch loudly or lick their fingers when eating in front of others. The global, a global executive for the company says all the women would love to crunch chips loudly, lick their fingers and pour crumbs from the bag into their mouth afterwards. They prefer not to do this in public. Well, I don't like doing any of that. Do you know how many times I get shushed eating Doritos? She says a lot of yeah. young guys will eat the chips and do all these things, lick their fingers with yeah. glee, as they say, and dump mm-hmm. the – I don't know if I've ever done that. Women would uh, – they'd love to do the same, but they don't. They don't like to crunch too loudly in public, and they don't lick their fingers. Hmm. My wife has disagreed with all of this, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a male-female as much as there are snacks for women that can be designed and packaged differently. And, yes, we're looking into it, and we're getting ready to launch a bunch soon, they said. The wow. low-crunch triangular snacks will even come in special packs specifically designed to fit in women's handbags. Hmm. 
Wow. It's a Cam- little cute bags. Women's campaigners have slammed the unusual move as a tired gender stereotypes. Well, Companies that perpetrate these tired gender stereotypes will continue to lose out on the yeah. single biggest consumer group, women, because they'll look at it and be like, what are you doing? Well, until they actually provide – it doesn't – I guess it doesn't – if they actually provided a cleaner way and a quieter way to eat a Dorito that you could eat in the middle of a movie without upsetting everyone around you, right? then everybody that wants it will buy it and then it won't – It's it, the deal is just framing it as a female issue. But that's I part of the like fun – Licking my fingers in public. It's mm-hmm. so much fun to be sitting in a movie and to try to see how quiet you can be as you open a plastic bag or like a sandwich wrapper. <laughs> or how about church? My kids will always bring food like that to church, and I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> no, this is funny. A conservative MP from Britain was asked about this for some reason, and the uh, Telegraph had the, the quote that says, I never lick my fingers in public or in private as I think it's a ghastly habit. It's a ghastly habit. I think the idea of chips for women is a bit daft, although I think women are generally a bit fussier than men about these things. I am a cruncher, but I'm fussy about where I crunch. Bully for them, Doritos. They've introduced (laughs) polite chips. Don't you think the world would be a better place, though, if we could all just act the way we do in our home in front of other people? No. Really? Not a better place. Hmm. So I don't like the mess. I don't like the mess, so I just (laughs) eat the whole chip. Yeah. You just, just and don't, then, don't play with your yeah. food. Just eat it. And then I just let it sit on my tongue until it's wet enough that it makes no noise. It's about a minute of chip. Anyway, helping you uh, get through your chips, this is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. My, oh my, have we got a lot to cover today, uh, including Dr. Frank Ninavaji will be joining us on, by the way, I'm loving his book. It's, Which one? He uh, wrote a book called Making Sense of Emotion. The one mm. Matt's blurbs on the back of. It is ah. a major, it's the Bible of emotional intelligence. Oh, wow. You've got a blurb? Yeah, I've got a blurb. Let me see. Uh, and it's the thing about it says what a book. The no. Thing about Doctor Ninavaji is that he's he's a brainiac. He is yes. the smartest guy ever. He's a Yale psychiatrist, and um, and yet is now trying to help us understand our own emotions. So when I'm starting to get frustrated and angry about what you are saying in a conversation, how do I? How do I take that emotion and handle it effectively? Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to be getting into today. Why did you rate it five chilies? I don't know. Five yeah. chili peppers. Well, because it's hot. <laughs> okay. Why else would I rate it five chili peppers? Hmm. It's hot. Yeah, he'll, he'll be so glad to hear that. Five it's five chili peppers. So uh, that's go. what's going on um, later in the show, but... Stock market open, drop 500 points. That's the problem. A lot of people mm. then start reacting, and once you start reacting to news like that, it gets ugly. Yeah. So should I be selling my stock? Should no. I be no. dumping it? Just ignore this whole thing. At an alarming rate? No. That's no, fine. Okay. Just let it sit. <laughs> you just start dumping your stock? I would hold on to it. The, the, you always play the long game. Well, first let me go find out if I own any stock. You probably don't then. Yeah. Ask your wife. <laughs> she would know. Do you have a pension? Uh, in For, five uh, years, Doritos. I will have here. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So that's so now everybody's like dissing Trump because hey oh look at you look at your recovery yeah yeah but then he owned it too yeah what yeah what did he say well no he he, he didn't own he the, the success yeah he's like look at the economy look what we've done since we came in this is so much better than it was you know yeah. less than a year ago he said that all the time and then once it falls you also have to own the fact that it fell yeah. because you just own you know and that's hard to do when. I mean, because as a president, you want to say, look at our success. And that there is a sign that everyone can like just look at the stock market's skyrocketing. Right. But then it falls and they're like, well, we're like the spokesperson yesterday for the White House said that we're looking at more of the long term successes, <laughs> not what happened you know, today. Yeah, right. No, that's. But that's like I was telling key. you, he's in Ohio giving a speech. He's walking around a plant. He's looking at you know manufacturing, and he's trying to promote the economy and look at the greatness. As the news channels are cutting away from the speech to show the stock market just dropping out of sight, <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, um, messaging. Um, plus, you but know I don't what? know how you get get up to him and say, oh, by the way, you need to change your entire. You know, you can't change the whole speech. That was the right. whole point, right? That's the problem. Just, it was just bad timing, but it was kind of fun to watch that. He the the problem is too. You all the news media outlets love to just beat him up. Sure, or and love he, him up, whichever channel. He, you're well, on. yeah, depends on the channel you're listening to. So it's always going to be an echo chamber, right? Same thing happened with Obama. Same mm. thing happened with Bush. Depending on who you're watching and what was going on. And- Depends on which echo you want to hear. Well, let's get to Terry's echo and find out uh, what he's going My to be echo, covering. Uh, what other headlines should we be paying attention to? Interesting fact I read today. Yesterday marked the 10,316th day since the Berlin Wall officially fell. Really? The same number of days that stood that it stood between 1961 and 1989. Hmm. So it's been down as long as it was up. Really? How many days? 10,316. 10,316. That's what I was thinking. That's amazing. That's cool. I remember those days. Which makes me feel old because I watched that fall on the news. Yep. It's like, huh, look at that. President Donald Trump on Monday suggests Democrats were un-American and treasonous for not reacting positively to his State of the Union address during... A Monday speech in Ohio, the president blasted the opposing party's lawmakers for not applauding him. Even when he referenced positive news, he said they were like death and un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, well, I guess why not? We can call it treasonous. Why not? You're wrong. <laughs> why not? So he didn't actually say it. He said some no, have said No, that's his trick. He always, that's how he <laughs> infers something was said by someone he else. He says somebody else, then tomorrow someone, then today someone writes that he said that, and then the next day he goes, it was written in this, you know, he cites well, those whatever are your it words. came from. Those are your words. Yeah. So. It's, but it's, it's also could easily have been Lenny, the the sweeper boy right. that swept the back patio of the, the back portico of the White House. Right. Because they were like Le- Lenny said that it was Lenny, but you know you just don't reference Lenny. Can we can we talk to Lenny? I don't think we no, should be Len- listening to Lenny's Lenny. business. Lenny, Lenny's a busy guy; he can't do it. The House Intelligence Committee voted unanimously on Monday to send the White House me- a memo written by Democrats as a rebuttal to the document compiled for Chairman Devin Nunez, who hasn't actually seen any of the underlying intelligence that he built that his his staff built the memo on, which is kind of an interesting fact that I was listening today. He hasn't seen it, but he wrote the memo, which it alleges M, uh, FBI mishandled the warrant application to monitor one of Trump's campaign advisors. 
That memo was released Friday after it was declassified. The House Intelligence Committee ranking member Adam Schiff told reporters Monday afternoon Nunez was asked if he coordinated with the White House while crafting the memo, and Nunez refused to answer. <laughs> Schiff said that we've often seen in criminal cases, when the facts are increasingly incriminating of the defendant, there's an effort to put the government on trial. That brings us to where we are today. Really? That's what Schiff said. That's he went weird. on to accuse Republicans of putting the FBI and Department of Justice on trial, which is which uh, very, he says, very ill serves the public, and we hope they will stop. Easy for him to say. And I was like, that is, hmm. that's a weird... It's a weird phrasing. Very it ill, very ser- Ill yeah. serves... Trump now, has, Trump now has five days to decide if he'll block the release of the memo or redact it or somehow maybe he'll, just he'll release let it. it go, or, and then he'll just block the uh, – he'll redact the entire thing, and then they'll release it. And then they'll say, I, re- I released it. Yeah, Some people just, said I uh, we redacted too much, but I don't know who they are. He'll claim his uh, bipartisan theme from his State of the Union. Yes. Even though he called Democrats treasonous yesterday for well. – they got to clap more and stand. Congress has until midnight Thursday to pass the fiscal 2018 spending bill, or more likely the fifth straight stopgap spending measure. And the House Republicans unveiled their opening gambit on Monday night. You ready for it? Yeah. House Speaker Paul Ryan proposed to a, uh, a caucus a bill that would fund the government at current levels until March 2013, with the exception Ooh. of the Defense Department, which oh. would get a $30 billion boost and be funded for the rest of the fiscal year. So okay, through March for the most of the most of the government, yep. but for the rest of the year for the military, right? Okay, that makes the sense. proposal, which also funds community health centers, is expected to pass the GOP with GOP votes in the House, but die in the Senate. Lawmakers made progress Monday on a full year spending package, including a boost to domestic spending. Democrats are demanding to match the boost to military spending pushed by Republicans. So. Everyone wants stuff, and everybody on the other side doesn't want to give it to them, and we have till Thursday to figure this out, and yay! Yay! <laughs> Some more excitement. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, finally, a SpaceX Starman is aboard the company's new rocket that is set to make its launch debut from Florida, possibly today. SpaceX chief Elon Musk revealed pictures of the surprise dummy passenger Monday. Test flights carry uh, usually carry steel or concrete for cargo. For our mundane experiments, just something kind of to give the rocket weight so as they test it, they yeah. can make sure everything works correctly. Nothing valuable in case the rocket blows up. Have you right. seen what's in the rocket? No, what's in the rocket? Aboard, the they're calling this rocket called the Heavy Falcon, or the Falcon Heavy, which is, again, kind of awkwardly termed, but it's called the Falcon Heavy. Uh, Tuesday's demo, Musk, he put his uh, red Tesla Roadster in the rocket. Really? So the weight in the rocket is his Tesla Roadster, which I think there's just a handful of because it's a brand new car they're making. And it's going to be shot up into space? It's be shot into space. Is it recoverable? No. A, I don't believe that's the plan. A mannequin is in the driver's seat with his right hand on the wheel and left arm resting on the door because he's comfortable. Hmm. It's a, it's a convertible. That's how you drive, I would have right? given him my car and taken the Roadster. <laughs> right. Ten and two, buddy. Ten and two. Starman, as Musk calls the passenger, is wearing a white and black trim spacesuit and helmet, the same outfit real astronauts will wear when riding SpaceX rockets from Florida a year or so from now, bound for the Interna- International Space Station. Musk, who also runs Tesla, the electric car company, is sending this Roadster into a long solar orbit stretching out to Mars. The entrepreneur says David Bowie's classic hit Space Oddity will be looping on the radio in the Roadster as it launches. 
Really? Last week, the Federal Aviation Administration officially licensed the flight from Kennedy Space Center. The Falcon Heavy at liftoff will be the world's most powerful rocket currently in operation. Wow. It's three of... We've seen him launch his rockets, go up, supply the space station, and then like land the rocket. This is three of those rockets strapped together. That's pretty cool. But they're sending this car up. It's going to go on a loop around... What does it say? It they, goes, they're going to land it. They're going to bring it back. And then he's going to drive his Roadster. Possibly. And then that Roadster is going to pay so for it says Tesla. They're sending the Roadster into a long solar orbit stretching out to Mars. So it'll go around the sun and then loop around Mars. And the way the article I read is they're just going to let it go. It'll just keep doing that loop. That's cool. So the car just... Millions of years. Think of the frequent flyer miles on Crazy. that one. <laughs> at some point, someone decides to go up and catch it just so they can look at the car. And they open it. No, seriously. Music is still playing. In that about 100 years, we will be able to go up and catch that. And then that car will be worth a ton of money. And maybe that's how Elon Musk's kids fund their electric car company instead of using government subsidies. Yeah, especially considering Tesla was out of business 100 years well, earlier. Yeah, that too. Even though I love Tesla, but mm. they're struggling. They got to make this work. That's the problem. Is he maybe he's doing too 3. many things. Maybe. Maybe he's he's making flamethrowers. Yeah. He's trying to dig holes for his Hyperloop. Yeah, yeah. See, he's just he's so many he's focused in so many Focus. different ways. Apparently, the flamethrower came because there was a Twitter joke about making a flamethrower. So he went, "Yeah, let's make a flamethrower." Can't you see Elon's mom calling calling him and saying, "Elon." Focus. You've got to focus. You are so distractible. It's fine, Mom. I'll and take care of it. That was my car that you put up into space. Hey, it, uh, it looks really cool sitting. They they have it all like propped up. Yeah, like it's uh, on display in inside the the I'm rocket. Go so. Check it out because that's what I need is to covet more cars. Yeah. <laughs> what a mess. Hey, bad news. If you are a smoker and a drinker. Listen to this. Be careful drinking hot tea. Mm. Apparently, drinking tea while it's too hot could increase your risk of esophageal cancer. A new It could burn your tongue, too. Yeah. So this is back to the hot drinks. We've talked about uh, the downside to hot coffee as well. But uh, just because it has that some. There's the chemical. Chemical in it. But now, if you're a drinker or um, a smoker, that apparently gives you even a higher risk. Esophageal cancer is the eighth most common cancer in the world. Mm. It's often fatal, killing approximately 400,000 people every year, according to the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Um, It usually is caused by repeated injury to to the esophagus due to smoke, alcohol, acid reflux, and maybe hot liquids. Mm. Which is – so when you're in a country like England where you're drinking a lot of tea, you've got to be careful. Or any tea-drinking country like China. Just toss a couple ice cubes in there first. Toss them. Let it cool a bit. That's how you get the chicken soup to cool off. Toss some ice cubes in there. Yeah. Is that how you do it? That's what my kid gets. <laughs> toss an ice cube in. I'm like, okay, fine. That'll work, son. Well, now that's too cold. Yeah, then he gets mad. Then you got to nuke it. And at that point, I'm bored. So I'm like, eat it or leave. Yeah, it's just it's soup though, or just, so just drink it. My my three year old will say it's not too hot. She'll put piping hot food in her mouth and start chewing on it just to show me how brave she is. Look, I'm so brave. It's like, 
yeah, but you're not going to be able to taste that food. Yeah. I think you're brave. Just let it cool brave. down. Maybe let her do other things to show her bravery. You know, take her shooting. Oh, she's always getting hurt and stitches and she, I think she's brave. She's tough. She sounds really tough. She is. Um, I mean, everybody's burnt their tongue, right? Oh, yeah. Daily. Mm. If you've had a pizza lately. Mm. Or soup. Yeah. Pizza and soup. Oh, boy. That just reminded me I forgot lunch. Hmm? Blasted! Anyway, let's get to the other headlines. Uh, Jeffrey, do you have any news for us that we should be paying attention to? I sure do. Uh, You tell me if you think this is right. Okay. So there's an escaped inmate in Texas who's back behind bars after authorities caught him running back to the prison with a duffel bag full of alcohol, home-cooked food, and tobacco. So he can't, He was doing the responsible thing. He went out to get some goodies that weren't available in prison, turned right back around, and, and try, tried to go back to prison. Well, Now, what's wrong with that? What was he doing that for, though? So, uh, let's see. This is in Beaumont, Texas. He was crossing onto a rancher's land that backs up to the federal complex. The inmates would then pick up contraband that was dropped off for them and bring it back to the prison. So authorities caught some surveillance uh, surveillance footage of this. They spotted a truck pulling onto the private property and dropping off a large bag. Shortly after, Joshua Hansen, an inmate serving time for narcotics charges, in case oh, you were wow. curious, yeah. was seen running from prison grounds, grabbing the bag and making his way back when police arrested him. <laughs> oh, boy. So he was being arrested on his way back to prison. Yeah. Inside the duffel bag, they found alcohol. Yep. Prepackaged Hooch. snacks. Yeah. And a large amount of home-cooked food, including barbecue sausage Uh, and fried chicken. See, but... uh, To me, that sounds like a cry for help. Like, please, you've got to change the menu in here. (laughs) Seriously. I can't have any more tuna on a shingle. Do you have a a problem with that? If they're doing the responsible thing, returning to prison of their own Well, no. He was was in prison, wasn't he? Yeah, but he escaped prison to get the food and the contraband to come back. Yeah, so... What's wrong with that? Well, it's illegal. Yeah, but why? Because... He's showing showing initiative. No, yeah. He's being uh, responsible by coming back. Lots of crimes take initiative. (laughs) <laughs> so that's not a hallmark of, you know. I just I guess recovery. I wouldn't consider it a crime cuz did he really escape if yeah. he came back? Well, he wasn't back apparently when he was caught. Hm. You know what I mean? Anyway, it's not a holiday inn. They've got to they've got to stay in. Are you saying that the holiday inn Okay, I I see what you're saying. They have to stay in. This isn't like, hey, I'm just checking out for a minute. I'll be right back. They're in prison. They've got to stay there. Well, then who's going to bring them this? Nobody. Nobody. They're not supposed to have it. That's contraband. Wow. wow. Contraband. Well, anyway, yeah. you notice there one of the last things mentioned in the story and something in the bag was fried chicken. Mm. We've got another story about a domestic disturbance yes. involving Fried chicken. What? Somebody was assaulted with fried chicken. And uh, Ron Brokaw actually did a brief interview with somebody that uh, wouldn't normally comment on these domestic disturbance type stories. And we've got him here now. And uh, it's not a full interview. 
I think there were some hurt feelings, so he may have ended it abruptly. This is Ron Brokaw, Tom Brokaw's like second or third cousin. Right. So, and he he explains the whole story. It's it's crazy. Okay. During an argument with his girlfriend, a Florida man allegedly threw a piece of fried chicken at the woman, striking her in the face with the poultry, leading to his arrest for domestic battery. Believe it or not, it's not the myriad women's groups that are up in arms over this story, but rather the animal rights activists. And we've got one of those activists here with us today. Miss Jan Eisel, thank you for joining us. Oh, I wish I could say I was happy to be here with you. But you see, Ron, chickens are being abused obscenely and relentlessly. Uh, Miss Eisel, you do know that the fried chicken in question was not alive, right? It was, uh, fried. Oh, you see, Ron, it's it's that mentality that really busts my chops. And it speaks volumes about where we're at as a society today. You know, just because an animal has been slaughtered, drained of all its blood, prepared in compliance with USDA standards, and then sold for consumption, doesn't mean we shouldn't treat that animal with respect and dignity. What about the woman who was assaulted? Uh, Many would say, and rightly so, that she is the real victim. Oh, don't do that, Rhonda. Don't make me out to be the villain. I'm sure what this young woman endured was just horrible. But she's got plenty of people rushing to her defense. But what about the chickens, Ron? Let's not forget that chickens are people, too. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, honored to have our our next guest on. He's a great contributor to the show. We we have him on regularly because we like to pick his brain. Um, it's Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who is a, a medical doctor and associate attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital and an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine's Child Study Center. He also is the author of a, his most recent book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. And today we will be picking his brain about uh, this concept of learned mindfulness, achieving authentic integrity. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. Glad to be with you again. Love having you on the show and uh, learning from you. This this idea of we, we hear about mindfulness a lot. Um, it's it's it, you hear a lot of people that are into yoga, meditation, um, uh, Buddhism. Mindfulness kind of reigns supreme. But but you, I think, take it to a completely different level. Um, talk talk us through. How would you define? learned mindfulness? Well, I I coined the term learned mindfulness to uh, distinguish it and differentiate it from everything else that you've just mentioned, because it, um, the the whole field of uh, what uh, is thought about and talked about and out there as mindfulness has become what they call a cottage industry. Yeah. Um, there's tons, tons of material and tons of writing and tons of courses and uh, practices uh, on uh, mindfulness and, and definitions. 
so to sort of uh, bring it down uh, without going into great detail, because actually uh, <clears throat> this emerges, learned mindfulness emerged out of the book I just published a yeah. couple of months ago, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. And that book is exactly what it says. For me, it was the culmination of 40, 45 years of clinical work in psychology, psychiatry, working with children, working with human beings, and seeing that really what counts a lot is human lives, and human lives are the fire of emotion, living, breathing individually and with others. So I thought, let me write a book on it, put it all together for me, for my own uh, benefit, yeah. as well as maybe to share with others. I did, <clears throat> and as great nature, the great universe works, uh, th those ideas were so pregnant that they gave rise to a child, and the child was, so now what comes next? What are you going to do with all this um, innovative emotional intelligence? Because in and of itself, it's, it's really crucial, but... There is always a next step. There is always another, another insight, another depth of understanding. And that depth was learned mindfulness. <clears throat> and that is a new book I'm working on. Mm. And I'm in the midst of that now. I have a new book contract, Learned Mindfulness, Achieving Authentic Integrity. And I wrote an article for Psychology Today, uh, actually maybe uh, two, three months ago. And it was sort of heralding and I didn't even know that this the, a new book was going to be emerge. About this. Emerge, yeah. but it is. Now, what that is for me is, <clears throat> it's the actual kind of implementation of emotional intelligence in a mindful way. It's becoming mindful using emotion, using emotional intelligence, becoming as emotionally aware of your own self and of your own self with others in the moment, at the moment, uh, in all you do that you might think is important, that you might think is really not important. But everything we do when we're alive in this world is important. And so to be as consciously, consciously aware is really important and this mindfulness sort of is a sharpening process a focusing process to learn how to become as aware in a sensitive nuanced way as possible to what i'm am i aware to the circumstances the situation to what i'm feeling what what where is the focus of mindfulness well bottom line is that uh, I guess it's a, a Latin phrase, in toto. Uh -huh. okay. The whole package. Yeah, all of it. The whole package. It's yeah. everything. But because our minds have been created to only be, uh, to only experience ourselves and others and the world partially, lim with, lim uh, with limits, and uh, one word epistemologically or through uh, the cognitive science is called perception. When we perceive, 
we perceive only features or aspects of things, not the whole thing, as they yeah. say in Megillah. Yeah. We don't see the whole picture. We only see parts. So in order to approach becoming mindful, most uh, practices, and they call it a practice, like a training tool, most tools use what's called an, an anchor. Uh, in the original 2,000, 2,500 year tradition in uh, India, which is where also Buddhism uh, emerged, they used the, the word, they didn't use the word anchor, but their word was alamba, alamba, alamba. They had that word, and we have the word anchor. Hmm. You need an anchor or a focal point to start with. Yeah. You need a hook, a hook. In modern terminology, people use that. What's the hook? So <clears throat> to start with, you need a hook. And generally... Um, in standard mindfulness practices, uh, people who want to just begin, just start out on the journey, because it's a really big journey, if they're doing it in the tra sort of traditional ways, they use breath, their breathing. And that's something which is uh, non-denominational, it's neutral, and it's very personal doesn't cost anything, you have it right there, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, non-controversial, and you can work with it, and it's not harmful. So that's the hook to begin with, the breath. The breath, and yeah. noticing it, um, uh, noticing it, uh, and, and I guess, and also recognizing that you're in the need of it. I mean, part of this is emotional management, right? This is you starting to recognize what's happening to your body as you're hearing things, as you're experiencing life. That's right. Your sensations. And that will, that, your hook there hooked me into saying that's where my learned mindfulness comes in because I link this all and reframe it in the making sense of emotion, innovating emotional intelligence model. And I kind of reframe it using emotion, my model of emotional intelligence. So I may start with the breath, but I link that to being aware of the first step in emotional intelligence or emotional awareness, being aware of sensation, emotion sensation, because that's the first level that emotion kind of emerges in your existence, in your being, as far as you are concerned, your sensation. Emotion first starts to materialize in sensation. Mm. And once that occurs and once you become aware of it and comfortable with it and a little bit versed in it, the next phase is perception, emotion perception. That's a higher, more refined, more nuanced level upon which you start to label the sensation and you label the emotion in terms of what, the, what you believe or feel the emotion is. Mm. And at that point, the emotion becomes a feeling. I feel good, I feel bad, I feel happy, I feel sad, 
I feel attracted towards something. I feel um, repulsed towards something. Uh, I want to avoid. I want to approach. I feel fearful. I feel joyful. That's the perceptual, emotion perception. And then there's a third level in emotional intelligence that I call emotion conception. And that's fleshing the whole thing out with meaning. And what does it mean to you, for you, and why have you chosen to label that sensation, that particular feeling, and why have you chosen to give that feeling that meaning, and what is, remember when we talked about, in, and I said in toto, the whole yeah, package? Yeah, The context. What do you think the context was that makes you feel joyful and start to label that experience as joyful rather than negatively. Yeah, monotonous or whatever. Monotonous. And most often it, it isn't the positive emotions that we need to work with. It's the negative, hmm. the negative feelings. Now talk the ones Oh go ahead. Deal, go ahead, Fred. Deal with fear, anger, mm-hmm. and yeah. sorrow. Talk Those about ones that need work. what this has to do with because this is the other half of this is that it helps us become authentic so understanding our feelings at the sensate level, the perception level, the conception level, th- th- this actually starts to make us more whole, a more of an integrated being that can start to, I guess, make better choices in life and, and better reactions in life, responses to life. Precisely. Because without knowing, uh, without knowing our emotions in a, in a good to very good way, um, we're more incomplete than complete. Mm-hmm. And knowing your emotions and knowing why, for the most part, no one can be complete in this world, but to have a better grasp of things and to continuously improve and to continuously flesh out and understand yourself and how you change over the day, over the week, over time, over years, how you are alone, how you are with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your employees, with your friends, how you are with the people you don't like. All of that can get keyed into your emotions and how you experience them and how you understand them, and that can improve your the word you use the word control over them. Mm. I would mm. like to use the word how you manage, mm. how you manage them, and sort of um, remove from them the heat, energy, valence, and intensity that drives them, so that they control you rather than you manage them in an appropriate way, so that you are empowered to make more conscious, rational choices and direct your life in a more civilized, humane way. Yeah. We're speaking with, again with Dr. Frank, uh, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who is a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and an attending physician 
um, at Yale New Haven Hospital. He's also an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine's Child Study Center and the psychiatric director of the Devereaux Glen Home School in Washington, Connecticut. He also is the author of the book Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Um, one interesting thing I'm noticing, Frank, this is this is kind of heady. It's heady stuff. But um, but at the very basis of it, it's 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 about management. It's about us understanding ourselves, understanding what we're feeling and how we label feelings, and how it creates greater meaning in our life. How did we ever survive without knowing what we know about emotional intelligence? It be, because in a way, it almost seems like we're becoming. We're learning more about it, but we also seem to be more anxious as a people. Our kids are more stressed. We're medicating more and more of them. Um, are we actually learning more but implementing less of this? Well, I agree with everything you've said. <clears throat> um, I think because the needs are increasing, because the distress is increasing to levels that haven't really been there before, uh, we uh, as a people on Earth, as humanity, also are eliciting from ourselves the tools that we have intrinsic, that we have been given intrinsically to formulate solutions to these problems, treatments, therapies, and <clears throat> I'm not talking about the drugs. I yeah. think those are, you know, uh, inadequate and kind of uh, defense mechanism, uh, probably very uh, inoptimal, uh, very deleterious treatments to these emotional difficulties that we're experiencing. They're diversions. But um, intellectual, rational, constructive uh, approaches such as those that try to understand ourselves as human beings and our what composes us what makes us tick like uh, not only our thinking but our emotions and how the two of them can work in harmony when they're both raised to a level of meaning and meaningfulness and then understood and then Given the, given the chance to assimilate with each other and become integrated over time. These tools and techniques now we have so that we can apply them to the greater distress that we see going on in our culture as human beings in 2018. Look at the financial situation. Mm. You know, they say, who knew this would happen? The answer is, we all did. Everyone was seeing this coming, and now it's come, and we're suffering. Everyone is suffering with anxiety, distress, and many people are suffering more than uh, others. Yeah. No, and you, it's so true. And it almost just seems like we need – we need deeper skills, like like I think you're teaching us here, um, to be able to go in deeper and and assimilate this mindfulness. To me, it's really hopeful to know that there's learned mindfulness. That can we eventually habitualize this? Can we take 
mindfulness that we have to be so consciously aware of, intentionally, you know, noticing things, does it eventually become habitual enough for us that we naturally default to that mindfulness? I think that's true. And I've made a point in the book, Making Sense of Emotion, and in the article, Learned Mindfulness, I I talk about it too, but in the book I really spend a lot of time on the on what you're on the answer to the question you just rose because I struggled with this for for many 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 years hmm. and my solution was to explicate make as explicit and clear as possible this this differentiation um, we learn consciously with explicit consciously aware learning and parts of the brain and that goes into what they call the part of the brain called the hippocampus and that's where new memories that are conscious are learned and then once they're learned they get transferred to other parts of the brain that get stored as non-conscious memory which in the old days, it was called unconscious. Then it was called non-conscious. And some modern uh, cognitive scientists call it by two words, implicit or tacit. Hmm. Implicit knowledge or tacit knowledge. Now, <clears throat> little by little after you or after a person learns something in an explicit way, consciously, and they do it over and over and over again, it goes into the non-conscious parts of the mind, which really are about 90, 95% of the mind, and it becomes implicit and tacit, and that's the word you used, habitual. Yeah. Then we just know it, and we just do it by rote. You know, a very inappropriate example or analogy is learning how to ride a bicycle or drive a car. Yeah. That, that's procedural knowledge, and that works with different parts of the brain, and it's a different form of memory. But it gives you the idea. You learn something consciously, step by step, step by step. You make uh, mistakes, but then you correct your mistakes, and then all of a sudden you do it, without consciously thinking about what you're doing. And that's how this may work eventually. But certainly we can't go from totally active to totally passive. And that's another point. We have to remain, and I call it a self-activist, all our lives. We have, we to, be have to be active. We have to be a self-activist and take active initiative for ourselves and everything around us. I love that term. That's what I love about what you do, Frank, because you create so many awesome new terms and words. Uh, a self-activist, we I, I believe we are here to act and not be acted upon. And you're saying we have to constantly be um, 
be leading this, actively leading our mindfulness, our emotional intelligence, and really, in the end, creating this authentic integrity. The name of the book is Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Dr. Frank Ninavaji is its author. You can find out more um, about Frank by going to his blog on Psychology Today, and you can read all of his great work. Also, get the book, Making Sense of Emotion. It really is the deepest, uh, most insightful book I've ever read on the topic of emotional intelligence. And the neat thing, too, is it's, uh, it's from a, a child psychiatrist who can help you uh, along the way. Powerful stuff, folks. That's what we're doing, trying to help you be the good in the world, finding your true self. And uh, we're just here as a guide on the side. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, folks, it's time uh, to talk February babies. And apparently, if you have a baby in February, there's something special about your kid. Is that true? What about me? Is there something special about me? When did you, if when, it's my kid? When were you born? Well, my kid was born in February. Yeah, no, nothing special about you. Ah. Sorry. Just super average like the rest of us. We're all just a bunch of averages. Except for Terry. Yeah, so what's the that's news? Great, thanks. Uh, so legend has has it the February babies have been getting shorter a, a, a full birth month. Yeah. Ever since ancient Roman uh, Emperor Augustus Caesar stole a day from February to add it to August. Because, you know, it's his name. Thanks, Caesar. Yeah, thanks, Caesar. Nonetheless, studies show that uh, parents of February babies can rest assured that their leap year offspring as the story goes, have more to celebrate than fear because of their birth month. Studies suggest February babies may be taller and smarter uh, compared to their summer-born peers. February babies are longer and heavier at birth. They grow to be taller by the time they turn seven, according to data on 21,000 boys and girls worldwide. Yeah. Big kids similarly score higher on uh, neurocognitive text tests, also, although it's important to note that not all scientists agree that February babies are taller. One even larger study indicates that summer babies are, in fact, the tallest. So depends on the study you want. Well, doesn't a lot of it just depend on the—I mean, what, are they supposed to be growing differently through the winter months? So you're having these spring babies. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. They tend to be more agreeable and more conscientious. Some studies show that February-born individuals are have an increased risk for uh, schizophrenia, but other research uh, disputes that birth months has any impact on mental health risks. Yeah, I don't know what to believe about that. Yeah. So it says they are. Uh, they show studies show they're more agreeable and conscientious than summer babies, but they won't gloat about it, and that's just not their style. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I love this stuff. Do you? It has no bearing on anything other than there's a statistical anomaly. Well, it doesn't. This this seems to like follow similarly. You know your zodiac sign. Yeah, there's some of that here. Uh, they'll probably grow up to be famous or a police officer. Wow. He makes that sound negative, but he doesn't mean that negatively. That's the default. Terry and I, I think we were both told at a young age we would probably be civil servants. There's evidence that people born in February are more likely to have careers as artists, as one study of celebrities found that February babies are more likely to be famous. Burt Reynolds, Ashton Kutcher, Harry Styles all share February birthdays, Hmm. which seems to suggest February babies also have great hair. I love how Burt Reynolds was the first name on there. Yeah. 
They even can play a cop on TV. February babies can always be one in real life. Oddly, people born in February are more likely to become traffic cops, according to studies. It, it, so- it, mm. it sounds like, by the way, Burt Reynolds, many would argue that's not his real hair. Some studies show there's an increased <laughs> risk for sleep problems. From February babies, really? okay, uh, but they have a decreased risk for other serious diseases. Uh, let's see here. It says lower overall disease risk, higher disease protection, according to a massive study of nearly two million people. Specifically, February has a lower risk for cardiovascular, reproductive, respiratory, and neurological diseases, and added protection against reproductive, respiratory, and neurological diseases. So they, wow. for some reason, they don't get sick in these specific ways. In other words, no wonder they're so tired. It's like they, yeah, so. Yeah. What doesn't kill you makes you sleepier because they have sleep problems. But I think that's the song. Doesn't kill you makes you sleepier. Yeah. By the way, sleepier sounds like leapier. February babies. Ooh, how'd you like to be born on February 29th? Hate it. They're tall, conscientious. They'll be famous or a cop. They'll have sleep problems, but they'll avoid maybe some serious diseases. And they'll have great hair. You only age every other every four years, though, if you're born on February 29th. Do you, you know, know that? Sadly, it's not true. <laughs> you understand that, right? You're still going to age normally. Bummer. Hey, more fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio. Talk about good. On top of mind, even experts admit to falling short sometimes. Look at my list. I'm like, oh, darn it. You know, I didn't get any legumes today. Got to find a way to have some lentil soup or hummus or bean dip or something. Entertaining and informative. Top of Mind airs weekdays from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. to the empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeff? Do you have any lucky charms, anything that you have on your person for good luck or that maybe you you touch or rub? I, I notice you play with your fidget spinner quite a bit. Yeah, no, I, I don't. None of them I consider lucky. Okay. I mean, my Netflix account is the luckiest thing I've ever had. All right. Well, I, I think I think we can all agree that there are plenty of things that we touch or rub yeah. or hold on to, and we don't really know why. Right, right, right. right. So, uh, how about Abe Lincoln's nose? Pardon? Apparently, <laughs> this is at the U.S. Excuse me, the uh, the state capitol. They are having to ask people to stop rubbing Abraham Lincoln's nose. Oh, because like a bronze statue. statue. He's yeah, and they keep it all shiny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's quite common, especially when the school kids come through. This is Paul Jacobs. Um, Let's see. What's his responsibility? I think he's uh, in charge of looking over the statue. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, the constant touching of Abe's nose has worn away the protective patina. 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 Yes. Patina. So he's got like a gold shiner. Oh, my goodness. You've got it. It's not good. Uh, And now the state's keeper of the arts is considering putting a protective case around Abe. 
Josh Lofton with the U, uh, Utah Department of Heritage and Arts says covering the art is the last thing they want to do. Even a simple case would create a distance between the person looking at it and the art. Yeah. So Lofton is asking that patrons enjoy the art but do not touch it. Lofton finds it interesting that the only piece of art one uh, uh, that seems to have problems is Abe's nose and, incidentally, Brigham Young's finger. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's pointing. Which is also showing signs of wear. Who's got your nose? Who's got your nose? <laughs> They're just playing hide the nose with Abe Lincoln. What do you think? Do you think there's some... Uh, do you think uh, his nose is lucky? Well... It looks strange now because the statue, he's hes bronzed, but he's got this really gold, shiny nose. I don't know if it's lucky. It's not lucky for him, apparently. I mean, it, uh, he served him well. But now these kids are all grabbing his nose. Oh, boy. Leave, leave Lincoln alone. Hey, trying to do what we can to help you uh, keep your nose to yourself. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. It's hour number three of the show. If you have missed uh, any of our earlier hours or any of our past episodes, you can go find our podcast Um archives and look at and really we've done 1420 shows i think now yep it's amazing just go digging dig through those archives diggity dig dig go to itunes go to stitcher go to tune in byuradio.org is another place you can dig them up can print it out on transcript Mm, i don't think so we uh, really because i put palakiko to work on that yeah he's that what do you think he's been doing here for the past six months? Not transcribing our shows. Hmm. Sorry. All right. I'll take him off if you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do whatever you got to do with Palakiko. Hey, here's the deal. We've got, um, we've got only one hour to, to do all of the things we need to do. We need to figure out why the stock market's struggling. Bitcoin. We've got to figure out why Bitcoin is slipping. Trump. It's, it's a Ponzi <laughs> scheme, according to a British banker. Really? Yeah. And so that's why it's interesting. Certain people won't invest in it. I don't think Warren Buffett, none of those guys are going near it. No. Too volatile. It was 20000 a Bitcoin. Now it's down to 6000 Yeah, that's quite a hit. People in, like, mortgaged homes to be able to purchase They ought to call no, it Hitcoin. No, do it. What? They ought to call it Hitcoin. <laughs> we'll work on that. No, but seriously, folks. Uh, anyway, the stock market, uh, the markets are volatile. Volatile after opening the be- oh, after the opening bell, uh, Dow has dropped about five hundred and sixty-seven points. Again, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. You were going to say Trump. You think so? Huh? Yeah, probably. Hmm. Um, so you know, it's what's going on. We'll we'll, we'll uh, I'm sure get the headline, the latest and the greatest headlines on that. Plus, other news. Um, Going on around town, it's it's funny. We've seen so many stories about the Super Bowl, but now we're finding out that it was only about 103 million people that watched, and it sounds like people are disappointed in that number. Those numbers are pitiful. Pitiful. They're really not. Those are no. It's a hundred and something million people. It's the tenth most watched show in the history of 
TV records, I guess. But like, what was so? What was the highest last Super, year's Super Bowl, Bowl ever? How many? One hundred fourteen. Yeah, yeah, but the fact that they're comparing it to other more popular Super Bowls means that they're asking the question, "What have you done for me lately?" You think that's what they're doing? Oh yeah. But um, it's also after a, a pretty difficult year with the NFL. A lot of uh, complaints about boring games. Do you think people boycotted the Super Bowl because of the whole kneeling thing? No. I think people are finding other entertainment. I think someone baited them before the Super Bowl into thinking that was going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. But then the president was busy, so he moved on. Well, and like <laughs> I, like we talked about, um, I had a lot of people at my house that were talking during the Super Bowl. Rude. So of oh. the 102 million people, how many were actually watching it? That's a great point. You know, some were talking. Some I'd like. I'd have to say, "Hey, <laughs> trying to watch this," and my mom got all mad, thinking I yelled at her. Don't yell at your mom. No, but it's uh, so the numbers are coming out. Uh, 102 million people have have watched, which is to me again, that's pretty good. A lot they're saying are watching it streaming online. That's supposedly that a bigger like deal. Two million people. Yeah, and it keeps growing. That's the biggest streaming number in the history of the Super Bowl. Two million mm. people. I don't. Who wants to watch it streaming? I mean, I get it if you're like at a job or you're mm-hmm. not home. And then they had problems with the streaming. Hulu, uh, you could go to Hulu and watch it there, and it actually shut down for a while. And they're like, they send out a tweet or something. We're aware of some problems. We're trying to fix them. You know, it's, but relax, still. everybody. My issue with streaming is that for a lot of these streaming services, you can't pause the event. Because when you hit unpause, it jumps to live. Yeah. And I can't figure out how to get it to stay paused. Yeah. Yeah, it won't. They're yeah. trying to make you watch it, not pause. Uh, they're not there to entertain if you. If you want to pause, get a DVR. That's what they tell you. I had one. I got rid of it. <laughs> How'd that work for you? It's working out great. You're, you're saving money. Saving money. Kids are watching less saving junk. Saving brain cells. No, they yeah. still watch plenty of junk. Okay. Because now it's just all on Netflix and Amazon. And they have plenty of junk on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, Okay. So let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Stock market open, dropped almost 600 points. Wow. Um, Trump called people treasonous, Democrats treasonous that didn't stand during his State of the Union. His White House is now saying that was meant as a joke. It was humor. It's a joke. Come on, people. Relax, everybody. Can the president not joke? The, the the Democratic response to the Republican memo from last week has been passed to the president, so he may, uh, I don't know, pass it. He may allow it to be released. He may not. I don't know. He's got five days. And they may shut down the government on Thursday. Okay, so not much is going on. Those are some of the bigger bullet points. Uh, ongoing, Donald Trump Jr. sat for an exclusive interview with the Daily Caller last month where he was charged with the familiar task of defending his father against allegations of racism in the interview which the daily caller published on sunday the president's elder son declared that his, the efforts to tar president trump and his supporters with the brush of racism and sexism were terrible the real shame trump jr insisted is that frequent criticism of his father are in fact undermining the individuals who are actually affected by real discrimination 
Besides, Trump said, his father is anything but a racist. The dutiful son noted that his father's various relationships with rap stars to provide the point. He goes, I know him. I've seen him my whole life. It's amazing. All the rappers, all his African-American friends, from Jesse Jackson to Al Sharpton. I have pictures of my dad with them. Trump is only accused of racism because of his political leanings, Trump Jr. claims, saying it was only until he got into politics that all of a sudden people said, oh, he's the most terrible human in the world. Well, and he knows rap stars, Matt. Uh, that is, yeah, rap stars. What like Eminem and Ice, no. Vanilla Ice? Does he know no. Busta? Uh, he just says he has pictures with That's uh, with problem, rap yeah. artists. Well, that yeah, then he's obviously not a racist. It, what doesn't that really just say he's more socially connected? I, the guy knows I everybody. <laughs> it's just yeah. kind of a funny. Yeah. Way of uh, defending your dad. U.S. troops are beginning to withdraw from Iraq, the Associated Press reports, now that the Islamic State has long lost nearly all its territory and the government of Iraq has declared its war with the terrorist group over. If this feels familiar, it's because it is. The war of Iraq was, uh, it began in 2003, previously ended in 2011 after a four-year withdrawal process. And this time is like last time. The drawdown will not affect a final end to the U.S. intervention in yeah. Iraq. Continued coalition presence in Iraq will be conditions-based, proportional to the need, and in coordination with the government of Iraq, said coalition spokesperson. In other words, don't expect this a new end to the war to be quick, total, or permanent. Right. It's still ongoing. Uh, the glamour of the Winter Olympics. Yeah. They'll start mm. on Friday. World class, it's going to be exciting. World-class athletes, gorgeous snow, and everyone vomiting their guts up. What? what? Around 1,200 Winter Olympic security staff in South Korea have been quarantined out of fears oh, of an outbreak yeah. of a highly contagious neurovirus, which has the symptoms, including people getting sick, stomach cramps, all this. Um, ahead of Friday's opening ceremony, organizers called in 900 members of the South Korean military to fill in for the oh, no. absent staff pending medical ah. tests. The uh, committee is apologizing for the outbreak and said measures to deal with it will be announced soon. But they will just, burn everything. But you're trying to have fun, and the next thing you know, you got the stomach bug. Right. <laughs> I hope none of the athletes get it. That would be horrible. They're arriving now, so we'll see what happens. A woman in New Hampshire won the state's lottery, won $560 million. Oh, right. Uh, she's fighting to uh, stay anonymous, though. Well, yeah. They have a, a law there that you, you win that's public. They're, yeah, it's public law. They have a right-to-know law, and she's... Hey, if you don't want your money, we'll keep it. Now, apparently, <laughs> a tr- she a mem- she's a member... She's in a trust, or she had a trust purchase the ticket, or through the trust, and they yeah. signed it, and then... So she's trying to hide and get the money, but still keep anonymous. And well, plus, you don't want all your friends and neighbors hounding you right. to know you're rich, right? Yeah. That, that's her concern, but they're saying... So all they got to know is whoever's driving a new Vespa <laughs> obviously won the lottery. That looks like a new Vespa. And finally, yeah, new dating requirements. For who? For dating in... For the daters of America? Right now, 2018. Okay, you new must consume dating all, requirements. You, you must consume all your partner's con- or, uh, content online. Really? Hmm? So it says, well, it's long been expected that a good romantic partner will dutifully like and comment on their other half's best selfies, it's no longer acceptable to simply throw digital hearts on your partner's Instagram posts. Mm. You also must watch their stories, 
Oh, the videos, wow. all of it, all of it. This is out of the Daily Beast. Before Snapchat introduced its story features, a personal feed of photos and videos that last only for 24 hours. Some partners would white lie their way through the relationship, going, "Yeah, I saw it. That was good." But with Snapchat and Instagram stories, there's now a clear record of exactly who watched your content oh, and when boy. they and when they did it. If you go look, it's right next to the video. It tells you here's the list of the people and here's when they watched it, so you know. Oh wow. Instagram even recently rolled out statuses via Instagram Direct, so you can also see exactly when your partner last opened the app. You can kind of see their behavior. This feature changes have led to enhanced expectations around content consumption. It's now understood by many couples that to be truly engaged, a truly engaged partner, you need to regularly consume your partner's content, and most importantly, watch all of the stories they create. That's okay. It's easy to label people who care about this type of thing as shallow or narcissistic. There will always be those who say they don't care if the person they date notices them online, and many people genuinely don't. But for most people watching their partner's Instagram stories, a way to show them they care, whether done consciously or unconsciously, it sends the message that you're interested in what your significant other is thinking and doing. See, but this is the problem. The problem is when you're dating, that will happen. It's when you're married that you're never going to look at her channel again. But what if you just don't care about social media? That doesn't mean you don't care about your partner. That just means you don't care about social media. But if your partner cares about social media and Mm. she posts a lot and you (sighs) aren't checking it out, you obviously are having an affair. (laughs) Wow. The only person I have notifications turned on for is my wife. Oh, that's cute. Because she'll ask and I have to find. No, no, don't say the word have to. Well, the other problem is I do that. What time is it? Yeah, well, I can say this. Um, Oh, because she's not listening? No, my mom. (laughs) She'll post something, and then my mom calls me to comment on it. Yeah. Right? Hmm. Now, the whole concept of social media is you can just click comment and do it right there. Right. It'd be all great. My mom will say like. She'll even leave a comment, and then she'll call me. Say I left a comment. To tell me about the comment and then comment further. Yeah. I'm like, you could have done that all right there and saved the phone call, but she wants to talk to her son. No, but your mom is kind of an innovator because someday you'll be paying. That's a live comment. Yeah. So there's there's online comments and then there's live comments. Your Mm -hmm. mom actually does both. We've discussed this, me and my mom, and Mm -hmm. I've expressed that not so big on the live comment. Yeah. Why? No. Why she is finds, that? She finds that to be kind of. It seems really redundant to me. You've already commented. You could comment right there. Yeah, but isn't it beautiful to hear your mother's voice? Well, it's great, except that's like the entire context of the call. You posted a photo of your daughter. Yes, she looks cute. Yeah. Yeah, she does. <laughs> and then that's it. Your do we? Mother. Do we have you to be interested? Me, do we have to share the interests, all of the interests of our of our significant no. others? No. I mean, I've I just noticed I've been married for almost ten years. You just noticed that, and I've just noticed that <laughs> I often will uh, start talking about a movie with my wife. Yeah. I just noticed the other day. You know, my wife never starts a conversation talking about a movie. If she's ever talking about a movie, it's because I've started. Did you notice that the same that the same thing happens on this show? <laughs> what? You start every comment talking about a movie. That's just not true. Most comments. And none of us ever well, I never start a comment <laughs> talking about a movie. Do I? And yet you rare. see more movies than Terry and I combined. Yeah. I actually don't see them, but I listen to more movies. Yeah, they're on. He hasn't playing on the desk as he's working. It's yeah. white noise. It's white noise. That's how come I've got so many funny lines, and then I found out that they were all just from The Office. Ah. 
So they were they were buried into your subconscious. Now, yeah. so I, I go to share with my wife the new Han Solo trailer. Oh, 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 that came out yesterday. Oh, and she's like, is this the one from the Super Bowl? I go, no, 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 no. This is a longer. It's like a minute and a half. 30 seconds more, longer. It's more content. It's so good you wasted stuff. another minute and a and half. I, I, it was the, kind of the last thing we saw last night before we went to bed. Yeah. And she was tired. So she kind of was dozing in and out. And I got angry because I'm like, hey, I'm trying to share something that I find very important with you. And you seem to not care at all as you sleep over there. Did she just roll over and... She, she was like, fine, show me the trailer. Show so, me the boring trailer. And so I'm not going to share trailers with her. She huh? does not appreciate the uh, thing that uh. I appreciate. We'll see how long this goes. A similar thing happened to me, and it's not movie-related. Oh, you good. remember the the, uh, the guacamole dance lady that we looked up on YouTube a yeah. few times? Yeah. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I go uh. home to show my wife this video, and uh, she she wouldn't be, couldn't be bothered with it then. So I didn't even get to finish showing it to Maybe you. it hits too close to home. So, Matt, <laughs> you're a self-purported relationship expert. I'm, uh, I have a, yeah, I have a company, and I do yeah. that, and I wrote a Yeah, you kind of volunteered the title yeah. yourself. So yeah. the question would be, where so, do you see this going? We both have well, shared things we find important, obvious. and our spouses don't seem to care. It seems obvious that you'll both be dating again sometime soon. <laughs> This is your expert opinion? No. It it sounds like you guys have a normal relationship. Hmm. Two normal people with normal relationships battling through love that we think should be easy and we think that our partner would naturally want to talk about Han Solo movies. See, it's Star Wars though. (laughs) Or the avocado guacamole dancing lady. No. Your wives have taste. Mm. They have culture. They're smart. Their heads aren't where yours are, which is why they're going to heaven. But if we have to express interest mm. in their interests, yes. they need to do the same for us, right? Yeah, I don't know that you – I think part of the deal is you just – when they say, hey, do you want to watch this movie? Do you want to watch Downton, Downton Abbey with me? You're like, Yeah. <laughs> For sure I do. I can't and, wait to find out what the housekeeper's doing. So why we do that? Just so you know, we call that a bid. So when they bid your attention, your job is to always turn. It doesn't matter what it's about. It doesn't matter if, it's, if you're interested in it. It's a bid. The same thing would be true if she was bleeding out an artery and she turned to you. Do you see something wrong here? <laughs> you ought to pay attention and fix it. All right. right? It doesn't matter if you're like, ah, I just started making popcorn. You know, you another, just turn and put wow. some pressure on the artery. Okay. Another thing I noticed, hmm. I'm usually the one that chooses the movie or TV show. That's probably why you're losing her because you have suggested two or three movies for me. And we're shooting <laughs> about 50%. So you've liked 50% of them. Yeah. I don't remember. the. Yeah, there was one I really liked and then... A couple that I was like, mm. I don't remember. So, well, you did bring up taste a second ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> I really do. I hope you and yours are good and healthy. That's what we're doing on the show, folks. We're just trying to help, help everybody survive marriage and, and make it the best thing you've ever seen. And if not, just at least. 
not get hurt in the process. Up next, we're going to be talking about the power of vulnerability, how our executives today in companies need to be a little more vulnerable. In today's society, many people think that vulnerability is a weakness in leaders. However, if people can't see vulnerability or authenticity in their leaders, they will be and feel disconnected from their leaders. The more leaders show their authentic selves, the more their teams will achieve. Here to talk with us about the power of vulnerability is Jeff Manchester, who is a certified business consultant with more than 20 years experience and uh, author of the book, The Power of Vulnerability, How to Create a Team of Leaders by Shifting in. Inward. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate uh, being on the show. This is um, – we hear a lot about vulnerability um, and, uh, I mean, Brene Brown has become a, kind of a, a sensation, uh, a researcher um, talking about the importance of vulnerability and authenticity. And now now we're turning it – it looks like we're taking this – idea to the uh to to the to the ceo suite why why now why is vulnerability an important thing for leaders well it's it's one of these critical uh components to helping to unlock the real potential of the team uh and what that means is that for a leader to be able to show up and be real and genuine really then empowers the rest of the team to do the same and this is a, a cultural transformation. Uh, I think that many organizations uh, look externally to how they can change their performance and increase sales or reduce costs or how they can get into new markets or what's the, the economic landscape. But this is an internal job. This is the culture of the organization. And if we can create a culture that ultimately builds a sense of trust and connection and safety for people to share, then we're going to get everybody's best ideas to come into the group. Interesting. To be a better, better yeah. organization. Does, I mean, because it used to be, uh, I remember, you know, you didn't see presidents cry. You did like, and if they cried, it was like, ah, oh, boy, here we go. Um, but <laughs> right, then, right, right. but, but. It really is an interesting point that there's something about vulnerability and being having your leader be vulnerable that actually, um, I guess it humanizes them. What does it do exactly that makes us want to follow leaders? Well, it allows us to connect with them. If, uh, if I am the leader that's bulletproof and always has, you know, uh, I feel like I've got all the answers, it's at some level it's hard to connect with them because – you and I both know that I might go through a, a period of time where I don't have the answers, and I'm like, what the heck am I supposed to do? Uh, but if my leader always has the answers, then somehow I'm going to have a hard time connecting with them. But if the leaders actually be able to be vulnerable and say, you know what, uh, I don't know the best direction for us at this moment. We really need to brainstorm this. I don't have the answers here. Uh, I need to get clarity uh, I'm struggling with knowing just where our best investment will be, whether it's for human capital or um, for buildings. And, you know, so if I can come in with a sense of uh, I don't have all the answers, 
then people can connect to me as being human. Or if I'm going through, you know, a personal or family difficulty, uh, and I'm able to share that at an appropriate level with, with my team, people again can connect to me. But you're, you're right, we, we're, we're fighting decades of cultural, uh, you know, um, dissuasion from being transparent. Uh, there is no place for emotions in the boardroom. There, mm. You know, uh, people play it close to the vest, meaning I'm not going to share for fear of how people might use the information if they know it. Mm. And all of that, right, that, all of that speaks to a fear orientation within the organizations themselves rather than something that is really much more open and trusting, which now I'm looking to create synergy by sharing. I'm looking to create openness and transparency and, and to build a place where uh, everyone on the team can feel like they can show up with their opinions and ideas and be accepted for who they are. Yeah. No, and it seems so needed um, in today's day and age because really it's hard, it's hard to even keep up the illusion that you can know it all. Um, because we have so much information being shared and so much knowledge, uh, but yet it also seems that so many of us are so afraid of being vulnerable. What do you see with the executives that you coach when you go in and talk to them about their need to be more vulnerable? Do they accept the idea? Do they embrace it, or are they terrified by it? Well, I think you'll get a little bit of both. Uh, you know, the first thing when, when you start talking about vulnerability at all the key to this entire notion is what is the environment that we're speaking about that I'm now meant to be vulnerable in? In other words, we have to make it safe enough for people to be able to share. And that's whether that's a leader or a member of the board or a member of the management team or anybody in the organization, they have to feel like they can share. And what does that mean? That means that there has to be a, a level of trust uh, amongst the members and trust in a corporate setting isn't you know, here's my iPad, uh, you know, I can trust that you're not going to steal it from me. You know, it's not yeah. that kind of trust. It's, it's trust that I can share a difference of opinion. Maybe I have a different view from the boss and feel like people are still going to accept me, that I'm not going to be judged. That's an element of trust in the workplace. Another element, a key element of trust is can I trust your motivations? Uh, you know, are you just going to use this information for, to better your own career and, and, and uh, leapfrog me in the process? Uh, or, or do I feel your motivations are aligned with us, what we're trying to achieve as a team? And most of the time, that comes from a deeper understanding of the individuals you're working with. When I can come to understand where you've been and where you've come from and the, your value system and what drives you, then I'll understand your motivations. Yeah. But if, you know, and there's a funny thing about trust too, and I'm sure you, you know this in your relationship work, is that when people really don't know those key aspects of my life, i.e. my family, my, my wife, uh, the, the parts of my, my life that are truly important to me outside of work, if you don't know those things about me, how can I fully trust you? Because you don't actually know me. Yeah, you don't know. So, yeah. I had a right. business manager, probably the best boss I've ever had, who 
um, really the best manager who would bring us into his office and he would just have a conversation. And for some reason, my conversation with him would always get really personal. And he'd end up then talking about his wife that had passed away. And he would he would literally break down and cry in front of me talking about his wife. And I mean, it sounds like it would be totally terrifying to people, but we had such a close relationship. I would then go out on the floor. It was a sales group and I would do anything I could to succeed for him because he. I know he knew me and I knew him. Um, are, is this something we're born with? Because I know a lot of people and I know a lot of relationship issues that come from our ability, our, our inability to be vulnerable with our people that are closest to us. Uh, but do you notice with leaders, is, is, this, is this just a natural thing for some and not for others? Well, I think we probably all have our relative uh, comfort zones when it comes to sharing information. And some are feel more comfortable sharing things than others. Uh, and so it just kind of depends on where you are on that scale. But I think it is something that uh, with the right kind of process, everyone can learn. I mean, I've worked with with leaders that are, you know, in their 60s and really old school and would say, you know, there, there are no room for emotions. And at the same time, they're the one that uh, is, you know, one of the most vulnerable. In fact, I was working with a family business and the patriarch of the business was 72 years old and uh, working with his sons and helping to establish this offsite, they were really concerned around this whole notion of going deeper and more transparent, uh, how their father would really embrace this whole notion and they sabotage the offsite. And the beautiful thing about it was he embraced it fully and became a leader in the offsite by being the most transparent and open and authentic. Mm. And to the jaw-dropping nature for his sons and the rest of the leaders of this team. And so it, it always surprises me. I try not to hold any, you know, I have preconceived notions of who may be more open than others because I've just been surprised time and time again that um, the, the folks I might think would be the toughest time embracing this uh, actually, once the door is open, you know, I think jump right in. Yeah. In fact, you one of the things that I know is a big part of the book is your focus on trying to get the team and the leaders to focus to really go more inward. Uh, so you use the word empowerment or empowered. Um, talk about right. what you mean by going inward and, and what, what are we trying to bring out that's already in us? Right, right. So, you know, I think that there's a common term empowered, E-empowered, that people can connect to. It's really the notion of do I have the authority? Do I have the responsibility? Am I given, you know, the opportunity to make something happen and uh, feel like I can go and, and get something done? That's different from being empowered. Empowered, really, if I could maybe dive back to what your previous guest, Dr. Ninbaji, was talking about, is this, this self-activist part of us, yeah. right? It's, can I reach in and can I bring what I know? The gift that we all have, if you want to call it our power, comes from our voice, what we can bring to the group. And that's, that's a combination of our history, our education, our experiences, you know, our worldview, our value systems. It, each gives us a very unique perspective on the world. 
And that's the gift we each bring to the organizations we're working for. And so to somehow govern or squelch that voice is disempowering. And so uh, we want to be fully empowered to bring our voice out to the group, to share what we see and know as our perspectives. They're not right or wrong, but they're true for us and they're unique from our vantage point or maybe unique. And, and so it's, that's the journey we have to take. And it's not an easy journey because the first thing we have to do is, is work on some, some uh, ways that we can build uh, a safe place for people to do that. I guess that's it. That's that safety. I have to – so part of my job as a leader is to make it safe enough for others to share what's inside of them. Exactly right. Uh, You're probably familiar with uh, Google's Aristotle project uh, where they uh, went internally and surveyed all of their groups uh, to identify the single most uh, important ingredient to success of those teams and those groups working within Google. And the very interesting uh, fact that came out of that is that the number one single most important factor was psychological safety. Hmm. It's really? It's we don't think of in business, but it's absolutely something that I've been working with leaders and teams for 20 years because I've seen the power of that in, in groups. I've seen the power of that uh, in, in couples and in relationships. How do you make it safe enough for the husband and wife to actually step into sensitive conversations, it's the same thing at work. We have to make it safe, uh, you know, so that people can step in. And, and, and that's, know. I guess that's a, it's funny because that is becoming a leadership skill. Um, this isn't, I mean, remember leaders were about numbers and data and, but we're moving into this idea where, no, leaders are about numbers and data and, you know, and philosophy and a mission and purpose. But we also have to create the right space and culture to make every voice heard. Right, exactly. And a few years ago, the Harvard Business Review talked about 80 percent of a CEO's job will fall under the umbrella of emotional intelligence. You know, that's staggering from when we, you know, 10 years ago or 15, 20 years ago, where it was about the numbers and it was about the structure. And um, and so, yeah, so it's been a big shift. And I think that the, the trick for us as leaders is to begin to be um, be really focused and intentional on how we create an environment that's conducive for people to share what they see, they think, their ideas and their dreams um, you know, I think we've all had those tastes where we've been a part of a team or a group where something extraordinary happens, right? The, 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 there's something that we all come together. We're aligned for a specific goal or activity. And in that alignment and connection and trust that there's this beautiful synergy that happens. Mm. Well, if we can create a culture that's open to being empowered for everyone then we can create that synergy on purpose as opposed to waiting for that magical moment to happen. So so that's the power that we can unlock and the potential that we can unlock if we begin to shift how we approach our connection with one another, uh, the opportunities to build deeper levels of trust and understanding with one another, 
and um, and that gets us to a completely different level of performance. What can we do? I always ask for the one thing. What's the one thing that I can do as an employee that I can take to my business, whether I'm the manager or the leader or not, to actually start you know, being empowered, bringing these inside gifts and traits out and being more vulnerable? Well, I think the first thing I would do is say, where do I catch my say- myself saying, I can't say this or I can't do this here? or that wouldn't be welcome here in terms of where I have to find out where I'm actually shutting myself down. You know, where am I keeping my best ideas and thoughts to myself and why? And then once I understand that, then I can make a conscious choice to try something different. And maybe it's putting my toes in the water before taking a deep leap in the deep end. And maybe I go share my ideas with somebody I do trust and one of my confidants or somebody else in the organization and build a sense of dialogue around that to then take to the broader group. But I have to first understand how is it that on a day in and day out basis, I'm actually, you know, dying the death of, you know, like Chinese water yeah. the drip where I've, I'm disconnected from who I am and, and my own fulfillment in, in the workplace. Oh, that's great. That really is great advice. Where am I holding back? Um, and and that will tell you. And a lot of times we would like to try to blame that on the you know the organization, the culture. But it may be my own vulnerability, my own weakness, and and that's something I could work on immediately. Jeff Manchester, thank you so much for your time, your great insight. The name of the book: The Power of Vulnerability: How to Create a Team of Leaders by Shifting Inward. Uh, wonderful work by uh, Jeff Manchester. And we will continue to help uh, all of us really shift and hopefully make a safer space where everybody um, in our community, in our work groups, in our families, wouldn't it be wonderful if we all had a safe enough place that we dared to share our best ideas? We will continue the journey straight ahead. Our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is our pensive music, which means it's time to think and go down to two of the biggest thinkers that uh, we have here at BYU Broadcasting. (laughs) I was going to say in the world, but yeah, just here at BYU Broadcasting, Spencer and Jerem. And we're going to find out what's coming up on their show uh, in just a few minutes. Hello, gentlemen. Deep Thoughts by BYU Sports Nation. (laughs) Do you guys want to like what what keeps you two up at night? Oh, questions like, Children. why did the kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Great question. Right. That is a great That's, That material question. is stolen from who? Deep Thoughts, brought it, to you by BYU Sports. Is it Brian Regan? Who's, oh, no. Jim Gaffigan? It's, Someone. it's from my Uncle Gary. Uncle Gary. I'm going to write Everyone's that down. Everyone's got an Uncle Gary. With no, it really is. He was Crazy a, thoughts. He hosted a radio show in Seattle. Did he really? Called Ryan and Ryan, yeah. Is that what got you into this mode of wanting to be a broadcaster? No, actually it's not. That was from the prison when you were the the voice of the prison after Um, your second arrest? Matt, I told you there are certain (gasps) off-limit subjects, man. You guys got to – I've got to write these things down. There's just too many things. Hey, speaking of uh, media, did you hear the, uh, the, the numbers for the Super Bowl? 
No, what's up? They were down, right? 103.4 million viewers. Wow, super disappointing. Down from 114.4 the <laughs> uh, in 2015. I think it's gasp. A, I think it's an utter failure that the Super Bowl is yet again the most viewed thing in the world. By the way, 10 mil, 10 it's the 10th most watched thing of all time. Of all time. So it did okay. I just think that people have more stuff to do. I agree. Come I don't, on. I don't think that the production quality or the entertainment no. value has gone down. There was that moment. There was that there was that blackout moment. Now what did you all think of that? We thought that a kid Shut off the TV with you. You thought one of Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Because it had happened. Yeah. It had happened earlier. And when children are around, stuff goes down. Stuff goes down. Uh, By the way, that's a great bumper sticker. I saw that on your car. That's um, nice how you set that up. Yeah, I'm a bumper sticker guy. When children are around, stuff goes down. Look at me. I ran the Ragnar. (laughs) Ragnar. Look at how many children I have. 2014, 2015, and 2017. They're all on a roll. I still am trying to find the bumper sticker that says .26. (laughs) <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's that would sell out like crazy. I ran half a marathon. I, That's half awesome. I ran point two six miles. Point two six miles. That's a, that's a little more than a quarter mile. Or point two six two, whatever it is. Nothing against bumper sticker person. I'm just less. I, I just post it digitally instead of. Physically. No, but you know your mother. Your mother had the bumper sticker that said, "My son's on the honor roll." You know she did. She did not. Were you leave on the, the honor mo- roll? Leave the mothers out of this. Don't bring my mom into this. Hey, did you hear about Gronk? Uh, Gronkowski's bad day? No. Oh, you guys need to read more sports news. Um, Clearly. The uh, Gronkowski, the great, what is he, uh, uh, tight end, tight end. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Pats, he apparently, uh, his house was burgled. It was burgled? Uh-huh. Somebody burgled it. It got boigled? During the Super Burglarized? Bowl. Yeah. During the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's why you oh, can't. That's the perfect time. Let's you got to gotta leave someone there, right? He should have left a Gronk, a little brother Gronk. He had an older brother Gronk. BYU played, a, BYU played against the Gronkowski bros in the 08 Vegas Bowl. Ooh, the Gronkowski bros. That's That sounds yeah, like the a... the Gronkowski bros. Doesn't it sound yeah. like a deli in, like, New Jersey? It does. Mm. He will be a future WWE star. Don't you think totally? Yeah, it's going to happen. If he can still stars. walk. I mean, that he guy's might retire. That guy's been hit so many times. Yeah, he might retire. Yeah, he might. Well, we all might someday. I wouldn't fault him. He's done plenty. No, he has. By the way, apparently um Tom Brady he two more Super Bowls is what he wants. Just two more. Only two more? He'll retire after two more. At least he's more. not greedy. He no. wants lucky 7. Yeah. I mean, what have you done with your life? The That's Patriots what... will be right back there next year. Have you been watching his thing, by the way, his uh, his um, documentary? No. Um, no, but I did see. No, but my money's on time winning. A much discussed moment <laughs> from his uh, documentary series. Yeah, there's some discussed moments that are like a little creepy. Did you say discussed or They're discussed? Ing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, and I like that you you're going. Let me get that straight, Jerem. You're going with the time is yeah, going my to win. On time winning this, <laughs> Tom versus Tom. undefeated. So brilliant. Hey, what's uh, what's going to be on your show today? Well, we're going to talk about how Tom Spencer Brady versus find, time. How Tom Brady can find the Holy Grail. <laughs> really? No, literally the Holy Grail. Choose like wisely. The chalice. What if he finds it? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is one of my favorite movies, and I love the night at the end. Oh. Really? 
You have chosen wisely. <gasps> that was brilliant. Right? That was great. Well, My favorite part was when his Dallas face melted. Was actually Mary. <laughs> Spoiler I, alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I think We're, that was a different show. Yeah, wait a minute. Okay. Angels and Demons was better anyway. Anyway. Um, what else is on the show? Gonna, oh, yeah. We're going to talk about is BYU ba- so BYU basketball is 7-5 in the West Coast Conference. Mm. Right now, tied for their worst record through 12 games in league play ever. Yet, we're going to ask this question. Is BYU better suited for the West Coast Conference Tournament to compete, to potentially even win that thing than they have been? We will discuss. Huh. Discuss or disgust? Yes. Okay. Also, what do Fred Warner and baby horses have to do with each other? <laughs> Ooh. We'll tell you. Wow. Stallions. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Baby. Yeah, oh, baby horses. Li- baby horses. Yeah. I don't know. Male, female. Is it matter. about the baby horses or where the baby horses? Something, it's, hey, oh, it has yeah, something huh? to do with the baby horse. Okay. This did is he exciting. deliver one on the freeway this morning or <gasps> did he get an invite? Oh, my <laughs> word. What? something. I hope he got an invite. <laughs> we'll tell you. That's a great. You're intrigued, though. You're like, that's what? a great what? tease. No, that's a super. What? It's random. It's, it's, it's random, but random. you're like. Well, the point is to get you to watch. You're going to get people to watch, and then a lot of creeps are going to show up too. <laughs> we can't listen. The metrics don't tell you creepiness level. Okay. No, that's 103 right. million. They don't tell you how many are creeps. Ten percent creepy. Ten percent creep factor. Creepy. Okay. Are you so a registered creeper? That's a great. <laughs> that's a great show. And so, if you're a horse lover or a colt lover, uh, this is boy. This is a great show. You're not going to want to miss it. BYU Sports Nation, just four and a half minutes away. They will now go get ready. They got to shave, get their body art done, and take off. <sighs> I'm proud of them. 102 million viewers, which is about half of the amount of people that watch BYU Sports Nation. Sounds about right. Yeah. Hey, as you know, we always like to wrap up our show with a, a little hero story. And our hero today is uh, a grandmother who took on a biking gang, a biker gang, as they tried to rob a fellow scooter rider. Rosemary Bodger, 80 years old, sprang into action after witnessing the ambush while out shopping. She was out shopping and she saw two men trying to steal another's moped. She attempted to prevent the pair from stealing the victim's uh, moped by grabbing onto its handlebars. A businessman in a suit then arrives to help before a pair of builders brandishing copper poles force the pair to flee empty-handed. The grandmother of three had been running errands near her home uh, in North of, in North London when her husband, Hugh, 80 at the time, uh, said, uh, I was looking for a cobbler and Hugh had gone off somewhere else. I just saw the scooter come towards me. Rosemary attempted to halt the robbery bid by grabbing onto the handlebars. There were two lads on it and they pushed the Vespa toward the pavement. This little old chap jumped off the back and ran toward the man on the Vespa, so another old lady and I started shouting for people to call police. I was so incensed that it was it was happening. She couldn't believe it was happening, but I work on impulse, and these things shouldn't happen. So she went and uh, created a fuss, and by creating a fuss, she helped save the day. So, Rosemary Bodger, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show, which tells us it doesn't matter your age. You are not going to be judged by your heroic nature by age. It's going to come by your heart, your will, your energy, and your desire to uh, do good in this world. That's what we need, folks. More humans lifting. 
And if we would all just lift in place, this world would uh, would take on a whole new elevation. I promise that's the show, and that's it from us. We will be back again tomorrow with more fun, more ideas to help you live longer, uh, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. But stick with BYU Sports Nation, because up next, you're going to be enthralled with the good brother and Spencer and Jeremy.